I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose where it's only eight minutes past seven and we've already descended to talking about Matt's knackers which uh, puts us in for a good night, I think. It's really crowded in here today. Um, I'm just readmitting Obi Ginge Kenobi because he appears to have kicked himself out again. I wonder if he's been on the wine already. Uh, it is a very crowded room and we're all here to laugh at the biggest failures in exploration history, aren't we? Which is going to be good. So Clive is here as ever. Clive was the first one here because he gets very excited. Very, very excited indeed, and very excited for tonight, because talking about dead explorers is one of the most exciting things one could do on a Thursday evening. It is now. wasn't a year ago, but <laughs> this is where no. we are right now. <laughs> uh, we also have Beth, who has got Krispy Kreme donuts and Skittles, so that gives you an indication of how her week is going. You're right, Beth. Yeah, it, it, it's on the up though, because I've got, as I say, I've got my Krispy Kreme donuts. Well, the, the donuts gone, so that's a lie. <laughs> um, I've got my sweeties and I've got chocolate as well in the hall if desperate times call for desperate measures. And I've got you guys as well this evening, so I am already in a much better mood. And it's Friday tomorrow. Friday, yeah. Um, Merrin's looking ready to, uh, looking forward to Friday as well. And Merrin freelances. That's how bad her week's been. You're right, Merrin. Yeah, yeah I, I can take time off any, any, you know, any day I like, and I'm already wound up for the weekend. Today I learned the different, well, today I learned that the packaging on beef smackos for dogs and biltong is remarkably similar, and there ought to be a law against that. <laughs> 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 Lockie's looking completely confused at that point. I think Lockie's trying to figure out if he's drunkenly ever eaten dog treats now, aren't you? It's more the case that I'm trying to work out if you've fed something nice to the dog or eaten something unpleasant yourself. I don't have a dog. Let's put it like that. Right. <laughs> Lockie, how are you? Not that I didn't see you about four hours ago recording your episode on the Battle of Arras. I know, right? I've got a beer now, which is good. It's a, it's a lovely Vesmala double, which is a gift from my chum Tim, who listens. So cheers, Brendel. Thank you for that. Excellent. We have Charlie with us. And of course, Chris will be lurking in the background. Hello, <laughs> Charlie. Hi. How are you doing your mammoth week of <clears throat> recording? Uh, I've forgotten what day it is. Um, having vertigo fits and, um, I've forgotten what day it is. That's where pretty I'm standard, let's say. That's <laughs> pretty standard for a history act recording week. Uh, yeah, that's that's that fine. Uh, and I see I've seen on your Facebook that you're starting to advertise for food fairs and stuff because you might get your life back. It looks like I'm actually going to be back to being a travelling showgirl chef from July. So going all around the country, 
making food. I'm really excited. I got my first jab tomorrow. Uh, Patient facing privilege um, because I do so much shopping and stewarding crap. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited, which means in 12 weeks, other countries might start letting me in. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we have Kit, who is well and truly had um, Ocean Village up to the eyeballs now, I think. I am fed up of Southampton. I'm fed up of Hampshire. I'm fed up of England. I just want to get gone. Where are you going to go next, Kit? Where are you dreaming of? Um, I kind of need to go some places for work. So I've actually got legitimate reasons, but I'm thinking Mexico is probably the next one on the agenda. You've got Monaco is on the work list, right? I've done Monaco. Oh, yeah, you did it, didn't you? Yeah. Remember when I was on the on the lovely Côte d'Azur and I was messaging you guys doing the uh, history hack? Yeah, we were ignoring you. (laughs) 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 We were pretending you weren't there. Uh, Holmes is in the house to judge again, judge Holmes. Yeah, it's not nice to be back. I'm, I'm, I've not been here for a few weeks. I, not, not much has changed. I see Zach and uh, Marcus on here. Have they been barred in my absence or something? Uh, no, Zach is going to come in a bar fly later, but we literally just finished recording an episode a little while back, so he's off doing that. And Marcus, uh, I don't know, where is Princess? Is it all to do with adulting and work and stuff? He's on his first week of his new job, isn't he? Running around a manor house in a tweed coat in his, like, a pig in shit, basically. So. Also, your first week in a new job, you have to do 15 minutes of overtime every day, even though you have nothing to do. But that's sort of the rule, isn't it? Yeah, as is the tweed suit in his world, I think, as well. Um, yeah, living the dream. Heather's here as well. Heather's bunked off work early. You're right, Heather. Yep. In fairness, you did get to work early, didn't you, to be able to bunk off? If her employers are listed, it was agreed. Uh, looking forward to this? Very much so. Yeah, you're going to end today, aren't you? Um, we got Dorman as well. Dorman, we were saying, looks like one of the original lineups of One Direction now because this lockdown here is just reaching epic proportions. Um, it's going to turn into, um, can you do it into curtains, like 90s style? Because I reckon you, that'd be hilarious. I'll, I'll give it a go, but I think my parting is too far yeah. on one side for that to really work. I'll end up just looking like, um, what's his name, uh, from No Country for Old Men. Oh, God, Dr. Abby's doing the hands as well, like he is some sort of teenage star. Oh. Yeah. yeah, we're lucky we don't have 12-year-old girls listening to this because uh, they would be all over you like a rat off a drain pipe. I we teach. Can. You can't. <laughs> You're not teaching now. It's fine. Just don't do the hand hair runny thing in front of the children and you'll be fine. Alina's with us as well. You're right, Alina. I am here. How's your time off going? What have you been up to? Uh, went to discuss some new shit about my new gaff today. Um, yeah, yeah, the house building. And you've dyed your hair purple, but it's not purple enough. And we're trying to convince you to do it like a mad colour next. I will, uh, up until the point that I have to go work back in the museum and then I have to look appropriate and uh, not a person of crazy hair. So let's, fingers crossed, it doesn't open too soon so I can go crazy with my hair. Yeah, I think I like the magenta idea. I'm going to roll with that. Uh, we have Kate with us in Spain as well. You all right, Kate? Hello. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, Make like demands about when she goes tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the absence of Princess, I thought, you know, we need some divas in the house. Yeah, we do indeed. It's going to be remarkably undiva-like without him. And it is my first week in my new job. Indeed, yeah. How is it going? It's really good. Yeah, I'm loving it. They're really nice. And um, it's really good. And I don't need to skip coming down the pub because 
Well, do you have to wear a tweed? I don't have to wear tweed, no. Which is Marcus would just be like, well, it's not worth it. It's not worth going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've got Chris. Chris, are you on mute yet? Uh, Oh, God, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) That was after last week. Yeah, Holmes dis- disappointed me last week. I, I could have won if he'd been in, but no. right, he made he he argued for 1977 as the greatest. Uh, what was it? Great, oh, greatest year of all year time because of Star Wars, um, and gave this impassioned, <laughs> charming, and very Chris-like speech to me and Beth. He were like, <laughs> 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 God love him. Uh, so he got a mention in matches. But basically came last. Um, yeah. but, but it was it was very sweet. Uh, James, you got your microphone on? Oh, okay. There, you see, this is what happened. Yeah, I'm back. I'm almost back to normal, which means I'm now cursing at character and word limits. Trying to sort everything out, so. <laughs> right, okay. Like, you were all on, and I am as well, because I'm entering tonight, a strict five-minute limit tonight, because it is a crowded room. Uh, I don't know where the Australia buzzer is, so I'm just going to shout at you if you go over. Um, so, I don't even know where to start. So, we are looking for the worst explorer in history. And I know we've got, I, I have a feeling, judging, looking at the list, I don't think the Iberian Peninsula is going to have a good night tonight, is it? Uh, <laughs> so, let me try and alternate so that we don't have a massive run of poor Spanish and Portuguese people at any one point. But let's start with one of them. Let's go to... Kate, Kate wanted to go near the beginning so she can go first. Oh, okay, right. I suppose there are two ways to interpret it when you say worst explorer. Either the one who sort of is the most atrocious, the one who, who's responsible for the most atrocities, or the one who's just rubbish at exploring. Um, I went for someone who's definitely the latter and chose a Spanish chap whose name even means useless, gullible or dim-witted, Panfilo de Narvaez. Bartolome de la Casas described him as tall of body and somewhat blonde, inclined to redness, so ginger. De las Casas also described his only vicious incident. On an expedition under the command of Diego Velasquez de Cuellar, Panfilo had ordered the slaughter of a village of Indians who came to meet them with offerings of food. Um, I imagine we're going to hear a lot of of vicious savagery this evening. Um, So this was his one savage moment, was to command the needless, unprovoked slaughter of peaceable, unarmed people on an expedition he wasn't even leading. Once he was put in charge, things went from atrocious to incompetent. As I like to always, as we all do, use the best and most contemporary sources available, I can tell you that the first line of his Wikipedia description reads he is most remembered as the leader of two failed expeditions just two and they both failed the first in 1520 when he was sent to mexico with the objective of stopping the unauthorized invasion by hernan cortez he had 900 men outmanning cortez three to one panfilo was outmaneuvered lost an eye and was taken prisoner He spent a few years in the 16th century version of a Mexican jail. I'm sure it wasn't much better than the current version is. But some years later, the Mexican powers that be must have got bored with him because he ended up back in Spain, where King Carlos V granted him Adelantado of Florida. So Panfilo the Gullible set off from Spain with 600 men on five ships. Among them was the also unfortunately named Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, or Cowhead, the only person to return from the expedition. 
on doing so, he published a book detailing their misfortunes. <clears throat> the short version is that they sailed into a hurricane just south of Cuba. Two ships were wrecked. The rest sailed on. Their intended destination was really Rio, excuse me, Rio de las Palmas, near what is now Tampico, Mexico. They planted to resupply in Havana, but they ran aground. They were then driven north by currents and strong winds, accidentally landing on the west coast of Florida. Having managed, albeit by chance, to arrive in Florida, Panfilo decided the place where they'd landed was not suitable for settlement. So he ordered them to split up, and about 100 of them travelled by ship and around 300 by land. Panfilo the Useless intended for the two groups to meet at a large harbour that was, quote, impossible to miss. They never found the harbour, nor did they ever find each other. The land expedition proceeded north on foot, hoping to reach the Spanish colony on the Mexican Gulf Coast. They were in the area of Tallahassee Bay when Panfilo decided they should build boats. The 250 survivors sailed west, still hoping to reach the Spanish colony. They were probably about halfway when they sailed into a storm and were shipwrecked. About 80 people were swept ashore near Galveston Island. They were the only survivors. During the next six years, of the 80 washed ashore, all but four perished. Senor Cowhead, another two Spaniards and an enslaved Moroccan. From 600 souls, there were only four survivors. These survivors became the first known Europeans and the first Africans to see the Mississippi River and to cross the Gulf of Mexico and Texas. But what happened to the dim-witted Panfilo? Well, after the shipwreck, he and a few other men were seen on a raft floating out to sea. They were carried away by the tide, and that was the last anyone has ever heard of them. That's like the shortest one Kate's ever done. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> People took me seriously. Uh, but it was, it was short, like I asked it to be, but it was massively incompetent, wasn't it, Lockie? It was rubbish. Yeah, so I think this is quite a strong one, actually. I mean, uh, I, I like the fact that his um, name sounds like a delicious pastry dish. Um, I think that's quite quite pleasant. Um, I do have a, a serious question. Have you spent time in jail in Spain? No, no, I haven't. Luckily. Okay. I just thought from uh, from your description of what it may have been like in the 16th century versus what it may have been what it may be like now. There was an experience. Well, no, he there. was in a Mexican jail, and Mexican jails are notoriously um, are horrible, aren't they? Have, have you spent time in a Mexican jail? <laughs> no, no, definitely. <laughs> I haven't. Wait, I haven't spent time in any jail as a prisoner. Um, I did used to work in one briefly um, a very long time ago. But no, but they, they're notorious, aren't they? You know, the films and stuff, they always have all Mexican jails. So I, I thought they were probably quite notorious back then as well. Did he do enough exploring to really be considered an explorer? It sounds like he went, I don't know, he was a tourist a couple of times. <laughs> he was... <laughs> Um, expeditions that he didn't lead and he was sort of didn't really do much um, and then somehow he managed to convince people to give him uh, money and, and things to lead expeditions and just fucked them up both times a lot had he not fucked up the second one so royally I imagine he may have done some more exploring Holmes what, was he was he any good in the first place Is it smacks to me like the sort of thing a load of people, when they get pissed up down the pub, agree to do, and it's just gone a bit far and they've just set off. But was he actually, was he actually any good? Did he plan this properly? Um, I don't think so. No, I'm not, I, I don't really know that much about, um, Carlos V, but I imagine that he sort of gave him money and ships and 
sort of sent him on his way. I'm not quite sure how Panfilo and Narvaez managed to convince him to do that, but maybe he could talk the talk because he certainly couldn't walk the walk. Definitely not. With four survivors at the end, were, that, did, did mm. they, were they all quite negative about him? Do we know? Um, we don't know, no, because there was only the account from from the Cabeza de Vaca guy who um, wrote a book or a couple of versions of a book, and he basically said it was crap and they all died, except him and two other Spaniards and a Moroccan slave that they had. Okay. It shows you how many of these we've done, though, doesn't it, Beth? Because <laughs> she's done this story before and none of us have tweaked. <laughs> This one we did most epic fail, and Kate has done it far better than I did. So my 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 turn as it was a fail in and of itself. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> it was it was not good. Uh, Matt has returned. Um, were you having a diva moment there when you walked off? Because I forgot to introduce you. Uh, two things: my pizza arrived, which um, <laughs> took priority, and um, I don't believe conquistadors are explorers, so I, I didn't feel like I need to. Oh, burn already. <laughs> going to get ridiculously... And uh, yes, I was upset that you didn't introduce me. I didn't feel the love. Matt is here as well, and Matt gets all the love because he's doing so much work this week. Matt did four episodes in a day and nearly keeled over on Monday, didn't you? I got a text saying, how the fuck do you do this? <laughs> yeah, you, you and Alina are machines. It's, now it's you not... know why we've lost our minds. I'd met you before this, so I thought that was a borderline thing anyways. Yeah, pretty much it was, yeah. But we're, we're slightly more mad now, aren't we? Yes. Oh my God, I was trying to unmute myself really fast there to get in on time. I yeah, know, it's, it's hilarious watching you try because you could see your panic rising because <laughs> you weren't in the button fast enough. Do you, do you enjoy watching the panic on my face? Is this fun for you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, this is the reason that we are completely... Right, uh, I won't make Alina go now. Um, Alina's got a brilliant one tonight. I want to save it for a bit later because it's like, it's going to be done in 30 seconds, but it's fucking awesome. Uh, let's go to, let's go to Kit next. Because Kit, you went away from Spanishy Portuguesey people, didn't you? Because you said it was too heavy. Yeah, there were, there were just too many Spanishy Portuguese people who were a bit shit and liked basically destroying the South American and North American continents. So I've gone in a completely different direction. Okay. I have gone across the world to Australia. Big shout out to Australian listeners um, who already know who I'm going to pick just by saying the continent. This is a man who is ingrained in Australian psyche, despite the fact he was without question the slowest the stupidest expedition leader of all time. Indeed, he was the only one we're going to talk about tonight who thought an essential item for a hike across a desert was a large Chinese gong so that he could call people for dinner. My pick is Robert O'Hara Burke. So we're in 1860 Australia. No one has ventured into the interior of the Australian continent uh, from the British colonial uh, expeditions. So the Royal Society of Victoria decide to arrange an expedition to do exactly that. Unfortunately, due to infighting over who should lead it, rather than appoint anybody with any experience of exploring, or indeed the Australian bush, they pick an Irish police officer called Robert Burke to lead a party of 19 men, 23 horses, 6 wagons and 26 camels to try and go across the entirety of Australia and back. 
Now, Burke was a shit show of a leader and made bad choices right from the off. To start with, he overloaded the expedition, taking a gong, flags, a large oak table and two chairs and enough food for two years. In total, it weighed 20 tons. And rather than set out at, you know, the edge of civilization, he decided to start at the coast at Melbourne, um, refusing all help offered to transport his gear. The men set off from the Royal Park at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, watched by 15,000 spectators. And before they had left the park, one of the wagons had broken down. By the end of the first day, they still hadn't got out of the edge of Melbourne. And this continued. The expedition dawdled, often making as little as two miles an hour. Uh, This was probably because they were overloaded, so the men had to walk rather than ride. And because someone had told Burke that camels needed to drink rum to avoid scurvy. And so all of his camels and horses were pissed. Eventually, Burke decided to dump the 60 gallons of rum he had taken for for the camels into a river, which made the second in command and the expedition's doctor both resign. That left the surveyor, William Wills, second in command, which is why it's often known as the Burke and Wills expedition. Eventually, after two months, they made it to the last point of civilization, a journey the mail service did in less than a week. At this point, 13 of the expedition had been fired and eight new men had been hired. Deciding this was going way too slow, Burke abandons his own expedition, wagons and supplies, takes the seven fittest men and races up to a place called Cooper Creek, about halfway across Australia. Then, rather than wait for the supplies to catch up, he speeds across the continent with Wills and two other men, Charles Gray and John King. The four of them take only three months worth of food for four people. Now remember, they had two years worth for 20 men, and it had already taken them four months to get to Cooper Creek. Burke, Wills, Gray and King, they rush ahead. They almost get to the coast of Australia, but they decide that there is a mangrove swamp in the way and they can't be asked. So it's still several miles from shore. They turn around and just come back home the way they came. Unfortunately, it's taken them 59 days to get to this point, and they only have 27 days of food left. They turn tail, they head back, slowly beginning to starve. Local tribes come up to help, but Burke starts shooting at them and they scare them away. The party then decides to eat a python that one of them found, which gives Burke and Grey the squints. Burke starts becoming paranoid, convinced that Grey is faking illness. And when he catches Grey stealing extra rations, he beats him senseless with his pistol. A week later, still unrecovered from a pistol whipping, Grey can't walk. A week later on, he is dead. By now, Burke, Wills and King are out of food and too weak to make more than a few miles a day. When they finally stagger back to Cooper Creek on the 21st of April, they discover their base camp has packed up and left just seven hours earlier. But we're not done with the shithousery, because after collecting some of the left supplies, Burke decides to gather his strength and heads off to the nearest settlement, the wonderfully titled Mount Hopeless. Rather than mark where he's been, as was standard practice, he leaves no sign he's been to Cooper Creek, and so he misses a rescue expedition who had come to look for him just on the off chance he was alive. Had Burke gone back the way he had come, he would have met the expedition and been saved. But instead, he followed this random river that hadn't been explored, ended up in a desert, then effectively walked around back into a circle, ending up exactly where he'd started, only this time near death. With no bushcraft, he didn't know how to prepare the the, the berries that local tribes ate, and so all three men came down with a vitamin deficiency disease called beriberi. Burke and Wills died probably within a day of each other. King, meanwhile, managed to find a tribe who nursed him and kept him alive for two years 
until a search party finally found him. Although he lived to tell, lived to tell, to tell the tale, he never recovered his strength and died eight years later. So for sheer lousy preparation, slow going, failing to do what he set out to do and getting himself killed through utterly unavoidable fuckhousery, Robert Ahara Burke has to be the worst explorer of all time. He definitely just sounds like a bellend, if nothing else. Uh, Holmes, are you sorry? I like that one. That's a sort of staggering incompetence that I think is going to win me over tonight, really. I think, I think that's preferable to, you know, partial genocide and the like, which I think you hinted at in your introduction. Um, why was he, he was sort of selected for sort of political reasons, as I understand, but did he have any competency at all? No, he had absolutely no qualifications whatsoever in bushcraft or exploration. He'd never done it. Um, his only qualification was that he was the local police officer. And then you mentioned that, wasn't it something like after after a number of days or even a week or so, or possibly even a month, did you mention that he got to the point where you could still get the post delivered? So why didn't he start from there? Because he was an idiot. He was actually given an offer of someone to bring to use a train to bring all his equipment up. He refused it outright because he just didn't like the guy. Um, and so, yeah, he set off from Melbourne. It took him two months to get to the edge of civilization. The post wagon overtook him like eight times. Um, you know, it was just rubbish. I'm, I'm guessing he was probably quite stubborn as well. So I guess if people pointed out, you know, if you just do this, this expert, you know, this might happen. But I guess he didn't listen, really. I, I think that's without the question the case. I mean, you look at the fact that his, his second in command, his doctor, both quit. Uh, Thirteen men were fired. And then he gets this sort of uh, sudden spurt and he's like, we're going to just go with four men right across the middle of Australia um, without any kind of preparation, without even discussing it with the rest of his expedition. I think he has to have a little bit of a pig-headed streak, yeah. And, and do we know if the gong was ever used? Uh, <laughs> we do know that the gong was used for dinner. Hopefully it wasn't before they served up that snake that gave him the shits. <laughs> Fingers crossed, anyway, yeah. Lockie? Yeah. So I, I, I did have a, a little kind of scout at this um, fella beforehand. Um, I, I noticed that he'd served in the Austrian army for a few years before heading out to Australia. I, I think he may have ended up in Australia by mistake trying to get back to Austria. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Although he, uh, I think when uh, war broke out in Crimea, he tried to come back to uh, England and made it too late so he got straight back on the boat that he just sailed up from australia and and sailed back to australia um it neatly sums up robert burke's life really <laughs> yeah so i think this is this is a pretty strong one i think um there's I, i'm kind of with uh holmes in the sense that breathtaking stupidity is is probably kind of going to be the way to my heart rather than genocide and scumbaggery but um yeah he's a he's he's a total klutz i quite like this one Excellent. Right. Okay. I will just say before um, we move on that it wasn't just down to him being Irish. This isn't an anti-Irish settlement. In fact, John King was also Irish and he survived. Dorman, what have you got to say for your countrymen? Uh, I mean, all the good ones are like Walters or, you know, we're, we're involved in the Antarctic expedition, really. That's where all, we sent all our good explorers. If he was in Australia, he probably stole corn. Um, so, you know, it could have been a, a hero here, but maybe, you know. Don't go wandering off into the outback. Yeah, washing your hands of that one, and I'm not surprised. Right, okay, let's move on. Let's go for another girl. Let's go for... Let's go for Merrin. Hello, I am unmuted. Hello, hello, hello. 
I have gone for a man who you will know if you've Googled him is a bit of a bit of a fella. It's Charles Bedo. Bedo by name, a bed all by nature. Charles was born in Paris in 1886. He grew up in a relatively poor district. His life was nothing if not rich in experiences. He befriended a street gentleman quite early on by the name of Henri Ledoux, a successful pimp. And Ledoux apparently taught Charles how to dress to impress, how to fight, and how to make money making whoopee. He became a pimp at a very early age. In fact, most urban references to Charles stake their claim on his early pimping activities. However... Often seen in a comically oversized feather hat, the flaneur lifestyle suited him, but the limitations of Paris did not. So he made his way to America in search of greater reward. Charles was a bright boy. He married well, he read a lot, and partly due to his own experiences, taking a great interest in supervising the dirty work of other people, he managed to work up a new theory about measuring the effectiveness of labour. In fact, the eponymous Bedeau unit a universal universal measure of manual work is still in use today, although it was highly unpopular when first introduced. It's the comparability and compatibility of employee and departmental efficiency. Campbell's, the soup manufacturers, Southern Textile Works, Loggers Lumbers, even Roundtree started using the Bedo unit. The man got around, he created consultancy, but this isn't really exploration. He was also bored by being prolifically successive at selling his consultancy services. And harking back to his earlier penchant for living life to the full, he decided he fancied a bit of an adventure. Ostensibly, as a means to test Citroen Kegres half-tracks, the civilian military vehicles that have regular wheels at the front for steering and continuous tracks at the back to propel the vehicle along, he decided that he would explore a new route for the proposed Alaskan-Canadian highway. His purpose was to to um, really promote these half-tracks on behalf of his friend and Andre Citroen. He set up a training camp for everyone who'd be on the trip. He contacted the press to explain that such training was necessary was for what was going to be an arduous exercise, hiking, rafting, orienteering. But no training was done because everybody was too busy having champagne parties. Nevertheless, driving himself in one of two limousines and with the five half-tracks and 130 horses loaded with essentials for exploration, such as caviar and champagne, he hit the road accompanied by a butler, a valet, a maid-in-waiting, over 100 people in tow, including his long-suffering wife, and the Academy Award-winning film director Floyd Crosby, who would later gain recognition for his work on High Noon. Crosby was there to document this exploration. There were geographers and cartographers, Bedeau hadn't chosen a route that had already been mapped. He felt right at home. Did I mention he also took his mistress along with him? The party partied on, stopping to purchase supplies and consuming them immediately. Champagne parties a go-go and seemed to be going well. Too well, in fact. Bedeau, decide, Bedeau decided that what the expedition needed was some scandal, as if can-cans in Canada weren't enough. And so he fired his radio operator, announcing in advance the party would continue without a radio. This didn't get much coverage in the press, which is not surprising, seeing as how the decision to dump the, dump the radio operator meant that nothing could be reported. He also decided to dump the surveying equipment and the cartographers, which meant the exploration couldn't go ahead, and decided the half-tracks were absolutely expendable and would create a bigger sensation if they were destroyed on film rather than used and, and kept intact for the rest of the trip. Accordingly, the cameras were set up ready to roll and Bedeau, his mistress on one side and his wife on the other, pushed two of the Citroens over a 300-foot cliff and floated the third vehicle downriver for an explosion scene. That didn't pan out. 
Bedeau's plan did. Canadian and American newspapers carried the news that three of the cars had been lost and some members of the ex- expedition had barely escaped death. The party was lauded for its bravery at this point, and papers soon began reporting the expedition would reach its destination. But as the expedition reached northern British Columbia, experts contacted Bedeau to warn him against travelling further north. He ignored them, and the party's few remaining horses and several members of the expedition began to die off. The champagne ran out, and to be honest, it looked more like the end was nigh than the end was in sight. After nearly four months in the wilderness, the whole party turned back, throwing one last hurrah in honour of their near achievement, which was, let's be clear, not so much pimp my ride as pimp rides roughshod over any chance of exploring anything successfully. Or was it? Bedeau's post-expedition exploits included not only acting, um, not only using his chateau as the host to the wedding of Wallace Simpson and Edward Windsor, but he also, in pursuit of exploring a better future for that couple and any opportunities he could to bring fascism to life, arranged the couple's visit to Germany for a very public meeting with Adolf Hitler. Not the greatest PR guru. In fact, Bedo pursued and explored rabid fascist ideals for several years, dabbling with his own micro-political economy in France, and was eventually accused by the US of trading with the enemy and was imprisoned by the FBI for spying and high treason. The result, quite sadly, was that Charles Bedeau was an explorer with so much zest for living life to extreme, but he took the extreme step of taking his own life in 1944. Wow. I just, I, he gave them the house as well to live in, didn't he? They yes, did he did. The mansion. Yes, but he was pretty pathetic as an explorer. Yeah, he was. And also, I, I don't like him because he goes for Mr. Dare House to live in and they're not my favourite people, especially after having to be up to my eyes in Wallace Simpson all day today. Right. OK. Holmes, you can go first. I mean, I mean, firstly, I mean, it's a management consultant who was friends with Nazis. I mean, aren't, aren't they all really? <laughs> and then if I'm going to milk this vein as well, I mean, most management consultants I've ever had dealings with, and it's quite a lot, couldn't find their arse with both hands, to be honest. So it's hardly surprising the way that this ended as it did. But in, in terms of the actual expedition itself, that was a complete failure, wasn't it? Did he did he find out anything that he set out to achieve? Yeah. No, got rid of got rid of the exploration vehicles, chucked the geographers and the cartographers, didn't explain anything, didn't explore anything, didn't come back with anything except a bad reputation. Although although the Bedo unit was adopted by McKinsey. So when you're talking about management consultants, that's kind of a, a sort of win lose really, but Yeah. I've dealt, I've worked with McKinsey as well, but let's not let's not libel them on here, not. shall we? Um, anyway. Um okay, but I guess he's another one that he was just picked because of his enthusiasm rather than his uh, his competency. Yep. Yep. He, he he fancied putting on a good show, and he tried to put on a good show, mostly champagne and caviar. And that was about the extent of it, really. And do we know if there were any... I, I mean, I did look at this. This is one of the ones I looked at this afternoon. I did spot immediately that I did pick up on the fact he took his wife and his mistress along, which is like a brilliantly French thing to do, even if he'd been in America for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they set out to explore and sort of map the Alaskan Canadian highway. He needed a bit of, you know, motivation from both ends, really. And um, also, I would, if it wasn't International Women's Week, I would make a joke about him getting directions from both and the wife and the mistress. But it wouldn't be appropriate this week, so I'm not going to go down that avenue. Lockie, do you want to dig him out of that one? No. Um, <laughs> It does. It, it again sounds a bit like a holiday. I mean, having been around that part of Canada, it's beautiful scenery. And if you've got company that you you like, 
which it sounds like he, he liked at least some of them, and have a shit ton of champers, this sounds like a pretty good holiday to me. I don't, <laughs> apart from the four months where they kind of lose their way. Is there anything um, about what his mate at Citroen thought about him uh, shoving his half-tracks down a river to yeah, blow up? And... He, he wasn't very popular. It was supposed to be a, a publicity stunt to promote the capability of these half-tracks. They took five of them. They'd been sort of homologated and, and sort of rolled off a production line, and he was trying to promote them to, to military purposes eventually. Um, so it was a pretty abysmal failure from that perspective. Sorry, just one more. Did, did his incompetency lead to anyone dying? Several people, yeah. Yeah. He lost um, loads. Lo- I mean, there were over 100 people on the expedition, and something like 35 or 36 of them died en route because of his incompetency. And most of it was they were drunk as skunks, so they just weren't watching what they were doing. Definitely up there in terms of incompetence. Um, I feel it's only going to get worse. Let's go to, let's do a couple more before we break for a drink. Let's go to James. Okay, making sure I'm off mute. Now, I've gone someone who's actually relatively recent explorer, well, in the early 20th century. I've gone for Wilhelm Ver Stephenson, who okay. was a Canadian slash Icelandic slash American explorer who was born William Stevenson. He's quite famous for his archaeology and his anthropology, successfully living with the Inuit in the Mackenzie Delta in 1906. This was a very smart man who had degrees at the universities of North Dakota and Iowa. However, somehow or other, this anthropological research and possibly his survival skills learnt under the Inuit people qualified him to try and organise a trip to the unexplored Arctic. Now, for firstly, as he was based in the USA, he went to societies there which initially sponsored his trip. However, because it became more a geographical rather than scientific trip, the Canadian government stepped in to provide as much funding as possible as they wanted any land discovered to be claimed by them and not the Americans. And for this, they were prepared to throw lots of money at him. However, he was quite frugal with this. And along with many at the time, he believed there was a hidden continent under the polar ice cap. The problem with the Canadians taking over was that this led to communication issues between them and the society originally sponsoring. And they also had a deadline of June 1914, I believe, to be set off by. He made a number of terrible errors from the start, mostly based around this unwillingness to part with any money despite the government's funding. The ships he purchased, mainly the Carluck and the Mary Sachs, among others, were unsuitable for exploring the Arctic. The thermal gear he bought was cheap and low quality, and there were inferior tins of pemmican for his men. And these concerns were quite raised with him, but this led to arguments, especially in the run-up to the expedition departing. He was nowhere to be found, especially after arguments with the scientists that were on board with him and some of the more experienced Arctic explorers as some of them were meant to be answering to the society or the Canadian government, but he insisted they answer to him, and he has all the article. He had control over all the published articles. Three months into the expedition, the Carluck became stuck in ice, and Stephenson scandalously abandoned 
the ship with five others claiming he was going to off to hunt caribou. However, many of the crew were sceptical of this and believed he was escaping the ship in case it drifted off and eventually become crushed, which he did. Half of those on board the ship died, with two four-man parties disappearing, one towards Wrangell Island, the other just barely disappeared, and it was believed that part of this was down to the poor quality thermal gear and the poor quality pemmican, among others. However, when he found out about this, when his ex, when the, him and the few others that managed to recontact with the rest of the expedition, he claimed it wasn't his fault. He claimed that only if they'd had his survival skills, he explained, they would have been died. They would have been fine. However, among those that died were some that had been on Shackleton's previous expeditions. The expedition survived two further poor quality boats, and furthermore, it was only under the second in command's bravery crossing to Siberia that led to help for others in a dramatic rescue. He frankly underestimated the dangers of the Arctic and refused to take any responsibility for the Carlock disaster he caused. Although they discovered some islands, this was very much a failed expedition. In 1921, a second expedition, he encouraged and planned for four young men to colonise Wrangell Island north of Siberia, where the 11 survivors of the 22 men on the Carlock had lived from March to September 1914 without his help. Furthermore, he did not go with these young men. He sat safely at home while sending them off. He had designs for forming an exploration company that would be geared towards individuals interested in touring the island. He originally went to claim it for the Canadian government. However, due to the dangerous outcome of his initial trip, the government refused to assist with the expedition. He then wanted to claim it for the land for Britain, but the British government rejected his claim when it was made by the young men of the expedition. The raising of the British flag on Wrangell Island, which was an acknowledged Russian territory, caused an international incident. Then in 1922, he published a book called The Friendly Arctic, which spoke about his time effectively on his own during the Canadian expedition from 1913 to 1980. And the title The Friendly Arctic sort of gives you an idea of how aloof this guy was and how he just did not care much for others. The famous explorer Roald Amundsen stated he was the greatest humbug alive referring to his mismanagement of the Wrangell Island fiascos and the original expedition. However, today this man is still celebrated. The United States Postal Service issued a postage stamp in his honour in 1986. The work he did afterwards, theoretically, did do some good. But as an explorer, this man was an absolute incompetent management level person. And he caused a lot of death, and that should be remembered. Well done. Lockie, what do you make of it? Sounds like a terrible person. Um, I've got, I do have a couple of questions. I mean, the, the international incident about around Wrangell Island, how serious a, a thing was this? I mean, um, I've been unable to find further details about that, but it, considering this happened, post-war and as far around the time of the early Russian, well, the early Soviet Union, it must have been quite significant. 
Okay. How about the the ships themselves? You say they were not very good. What what what, what was up with them? About, about uh, many of them were old whaler ships and in quite poor condition. Okay. So they were not well suited to Arctic exploration and they quite easily get get trapped in the ice. Which is what happened. Which is what happened. Yeah. Which which Stephenson kind of saw what was happening and said, I don't want to be on this ship anymore and hopped it. <laughs> yeah, him and about six other men, they claimed they were hunting for caribou, but by the time they supposedly finished their hunt, the, the car look, the lead ship had been carried off in the ice uh, westwards until they could no longer get back to it. Sounds like he, him and those six other men were probably the best explorers on that ship, weren't they? Uh, well, the thing is, he claims his survival skills, if they'd all had his survival skills, they would have been fine. But the men, quite a few of the men with him died, and it was only due to the heroics of the second-in-command on the Carluck, um, that Stem and others that got to Wrangell Island survived. It's just, he just seems to have ignored it completely. He's not taught them. His preparation was poor at very best. And this was a man that on paper should have been perfect to lead such an expedition, perfect to lead such men. And in the end, he wasn't. He was the complete opposite. All right. I'm out. Holmes? I mean, to me, it seems his reputation all stands and falls on whether you believe that he got off the ship with those six men deliberately to leave everyone to their fate. And I'm not sure I entirely believe that. I mean, if you look at how he was treated after that, he wasn't exactly shunned by the exploration and science community. He was... Not quite, but the survivors especially shunned him because it wasn't just down to him leaving the ship. It was just the aloofness to the deaths. He said... If they had his skills, they would survive. But he never seems to have imparted those skills. And quite a few of the people that died were experienced Arctic exploration members that had been on previous expeditions. So that caused a lot of issues. And it's clear there was issues with the planning that was all down to him and his frugalness. I mean, he did go on to become club president of the Explorers Club and a similar role with another organisation. I mean, it's not... It's not that some of the circumstances of this are not that difficult to what happened to Shackleton. Yet he's regarded, you know, and I'm sure Shackleton, not everyone on the Shackleton exhibition was trained in Arctic survival, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's lacking the proper incontinence, incompetence rather that we've enjoyed from some of the other candidates, I think. I think. Fair counterpoint. I think a lot of these things, even with the best planning in the world, you're up in extreme environments, um, and things can go wrong, but it doesn't necessarily make you incompetent. That's a fair counterpoint. I accept that. Okay, let's do one more before we break to go and get gin, because I'm getting thirsty. Let's do... Aaliyah, do you want to do yours? Go on. I like your one. Mine's going to be really quick. Um, so any of you who have been listening to to me and Alex, I think was, this one came out, what, last was it last week? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so last week... Uh, we did a podcast on uh, the Mali Empire and um, I thought this guy deserved another mention because of his sheer <laughs> stupidity and sheer incompetence. I just, uh, I'm just astounded to how stupid this guy is. Right. And it's the reason he's stupid that it's so short as well. 
Exactly, because there's, there's there's very little information. We've got very little information about this guy. Um, so I'm going to talk about Mansa Abu Bakr the second. Um, so Mansa means uh, king or emperor. He's the 14th century ruler of the Mali Empire. He's the fifth fifth one in the in the lot. But we know nothing about him. Um, but all that we do know about him is found in the works um, of Al Umari. Um, and most of the sources pretty much come from his successor. So in theory, we don't really know if like some of these details are true, but I'm going to read you a quote, which has been translated into English. Uh, so Akbar equipped 200 ships filled with men and the same number equipped with gold, water and provisions, enough to last them for years. They've departed and a long time passed before anyone came back. Then one ship returned and we asked the captain what news they brought. He said, oh, yes. Oh, Sultan, uh, we travelled for a really long time until there appeared in the open sea a river with a powerful current. The other ships went on ahead. But when they reached that place, they did not return and no more was seen of them. As for me, I went about at once and did not enter the river. The Sultan got ready. 2,000 ships, 1,000 for himself and the men who he took with him and 1,000 for water and provisions. He left me to deputy, he left me to deputy, left me to deputy, someone's translated this really shit. He left me to deputies for him and embarked on the Atlantic Ocean with his men. That was the last we saw of him and all of those who were with him. And so I became king in my own right. So the bottom line is, this king took 2,000 ships. He abdicated his throne as well, didn't he? Because he wanted to see the world. Exactly. And um, he just, I just, I'm so, I just can't stop laughing. He at basically you. said, I hereby give back my throne so I can take these treasure ships and go forth to the furthest oceans of the world. And nobody ever heard. Pretty from much. Him. He wanted to travel and explore. <laughs> but do you know what? What's really interesting? They, uh, they say, they say that he actually got to, uh, the new world. So like the Americas. And apparently they've discovered skeletons and, and evidence that he did. It's kind of, it's all, it's all bullshit. But apparently Christopher Columbus discovered, um, skeletons and, and treasure and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, the bottom line is don't abdicate your throne send 2,000 ships into the unknown and basically kill everyone on board and die. <laughs> of the, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Yeah. <laughs> Quite possibly. Narnia is just stealing off Marley. Oh, it must be a Clive Cussler book as well. Uh, Holmes? Yeah, that's, that's okay. I'm slightly sceptical. 2,000 ships seems quite a lot to me. I mean, I'm not an expert in... I wonder if they were quite um, giddy. Well, yeah. It's the yeah. 14th century. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is it could have been about a hundred ships and 1,900 rubber rings and dinghies or something like that. Yeah, feasible. Yeah. Medieval that, rubber rings. That would explain why the current took them so easily. <laughs> I think if I think if Gene Hackman's taught us anything, the Polish do like their little rubber boats. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, funny man, haha. And then nothing, nothing was ever seen of them again. Any of this lot, the ones that went missing. Literally, the last thing was him waving goodbye, going, "I'm off to see the furthest oceans of the world." Work for your stock. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. He might have found Paradise Island at a fucking great time. Yeah, he, all, may, you know, just... he may have played up on a Caribbean island with a, a, like where there was an all-female tribe of hookers uh, <laughs> and just spent his gold on them and had a great time. We may be mocking him when he uh, he he loved it. Would, would they have need to be hookers if they were just an all-female tribe on an island? <laughs> well, they more gold than the other girls, I don't know. Yeah. More questions? No, I just thought it was a pretty bold opening saying we know nothing about him. she Uh, was getting the African involvement because it's always lacking and Alina wanted to cover something uh, from the African continent so she picked him uh, and we chatted about him the other day as well I think it's great, I think it's like you abdicate your throne, what a knob for a start, but he took all the money with him, maybe not that stupid um, and then just got lost or drowned or whatever I'm pretty sure that stuff about Columbus fighting is bullshit, though, right? Must have been a bloody strong oh, totally. carried their rubber dinghies all the way to the New World. Is it your official position, Alex, that anyone who leaves the royal family is is clearly a dickhead? Uh, it depends. It depends if they leave saying that they just want to be left alone. I mean, he did clearly. He He wanted to be left alone and he put his money where his mouth is. He went off on the longest gap year ever. I can respect that. Is Maybe that Edward VIII, when he was sent to Bermuda, was looking for um, for this guy's treasure. Uh, anyway, before I get my access at Windsor revoked, uh, let's go for let's have a drink. Let's go get a drink, and then we'll come back. Uh, and we're about halfway. I love that you're all sticking to the time frame, though. This is brilliant. Right, we're back. Heather has just made everybody cry in the chat because she's got chocolate covered marshmallow Oreos, which we don't have which is annoying. Uh, and Beth, it turns out, is just eating four servings of Skittles. It's quite funny watching her try and chew through an entire serving at once as well. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to... I'm going to go to Matt first, because Matt and I need to go at opposite ends, I feel, otherwise it all gets a little bit too polar, doesn't it? So go on, Matt. I know it's it's, 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 it is literally opposite ends, isn't it? Yeah. Let's go south <clears> first, because he's really fucked you off doing the research for this, hasn't it? I, I, this guy is a prick. Anyway, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's do this thing. <clears throat> Robert Falcon Scott was born on the 6th of June, 1868. He would enter the Navy aged 13 and pass out for Britannia, seventh in his class, a newly minted midshipman. His naval career was not particularly stellar. Despite completing all the courses that you would normally do to get yourself a command at the beginning of the 20th century, he found his ways blocked. So in dire need of cash, he was on the lookout for an opportunity when he managed to accost Clement Markham, who'd just been made the head of the Royal Geographical Society, and talk his way into becoming the head of the commander of their new expedition, which was officially called the British National Antarctic Expedition and we know it as the Discovery Expedition of 1901 to 1904. This was a scientific expedition that would basically set up camp, mooch around for a bit, and while they were there, if they could, bimble south, and if they find anything, that would be ace. All in all, the Discovery Expedition could be deemed a huge success because it did introduce the world to the Emperor Penguin. Other than that, not so much. It also reminded everyone, when Scott published the official account of the expedition, imaginatively called The Voyage of Discovery, 
just how beachy a bunch the British exploring class were. In the book, he basically throws Ernest Shackleton under the bus for their failure to get very far south at all. The fact they were feeding their dogs terrible food and other dogs were ill-prepared generally and totally ill-provisioned for the trip didn't matter. Shackleton getting scurvy was the reason for them not getting very far south. Needless to say, they fell out a bit. Now, if Scott had left it there, returning to Blighty, a self-promoting hero, and settled down into shagging his way around London society, maybe going back to his roots playing with boats in the senior service, he would never have entered my mind as the worst explorer ever. You see, the Discovery Expedition, despite the Penguins, was a bit of a bust. Despite the heroic Britishness of it all, it doesn't really stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. And even at the time, seasoned Arctic explorers were picking holes in it, including Scott's preferred use of manpower over sled dogs to pull the sleds. But he wanted to go back. Now, Shackleton, God love him, beat him to it. He went back in 1907 to 1909 on the Nimrod expedition with the simple goal of getting to both poles, the magnetic and geographic South Poles. Scott chucked his toys right out of the pram when Shackleton said he was going to use the old Discovery base at McMurdo and basically said to him, you can't use it until I've finished with it. The fact he had no intention of leaving London at any time didn't really come into his mind. Anyways, Shackleton went, didn't reach the pole, but got to 88 degrees, 22 minutes south before turning back with all of his men in one piece. Well, multiple pieces, them each being individual men. They had managed to scale Mount Erebus, though, for the first time ever. Scott would then take his turn in 1910 with the Terra Nova expedition. The goals of this expedition are too long to go into in my five minutes here, but there's lots of scientific sort of things that any good explorer should go after. But Scott made a massive public play about securing the pole for the British Empire. He, as many Brits fail to remember, the British Empire is only really good at taking and holding the warm bits of the map that have spicy foods. The cold bits, like the Poles, in Canada, they kind of leave to whoever was there because, you know, they're cold. Anyways, off he went. While racing to catch up with his own expedition, which had left before him because he was, you know, doing telly or something, he received a telegram from the Norwegian Roald Amundsen, who, after being beaten to the North Pole, decided he still wanted a pole and pointed his ship south. British historians and Ranulph Fiennes cry foul here about how unsporting the perfidious Johnny Foreigner was. But Amundsen wanted a poll, and that's all he really wanted. All the sciencey stuff that was paying for his trip, he couldn't really care less about. So Amundsen sent a brilliant gauntlet throwing down to Scott that simply read, Beg to inform you, Fram proceeding Antarctic, Amundsen. Scott's expedition was not set up for a race to the pole. It was what's termed a siege expedition in the same way that Mallory climbing Everest was. Basically, you take loads of champagne and foie gras and stuff like that, pack it all into boats and then camp out and slowly work your way towards your goal. Scott's team was really big and had loads of things to do. And being British and relying upon a total pig-headed unwillingness to look facts in the face to see everything through, they suddenly decided to go to the pole. After a season on the ice and the other team setting off to do sciencey bits, which nearly killed most of them, they set up depots and food drops and then set off in groups in motorized sleds with dogs and things like that. 
These teams would then break off, leading, leaving the polo team of Scott, Edward Adrian Wilson, Lawrence Oates, Henry Robertson Burroughs, and Edgar Evans to take the pole for Britain. The decision-making for all of this is, frankly, crap. They decided to use dogs only part of the way and then sent them back. When they found out they weren't making the progress they made, they tried to speed up but hit bad weather and ended up eating their way into supplies that they didn't have. All of this should have been warning signs. But out there in the snow in the blizzard was Johnny Forner. So for king and country, they must get to the pole first. They didn't. Amazon beat them by a month. A month. He even had time to spend days wandering around making sure they were in exactly the right spot. So they didn't have the same issue the Americans had when they claimed they got to the pole and were you know, probably in you know, Montana or something. Amundsen very kindly left a, Scott, a letter for Scott to post in case he found it, just in case Amundsen got lost on the way home. So the not-so-plucky Brits and arrive, they read the letter, and decide to head home. But they never make it. Because even on the way back, they have no food, scurvy setting in, frostbite the whole nine yards. Scott diverts them to pick up a load of rocks. Uh, yeah, rocks. What? Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, after they pick up the rocks, their men literally start falling. Evans goes first. And then when they reached a point where they had, or where Scott had ordered the dog teams to meet them in an order that was written in a way that would make Cardigan blush and was subsequently never followed, they sat around for a bit and then decided to push on. They were 11 miles short of one ton depot and they camped. That's where Captain Oates famously went out for his walk, which didn't really help because they all ended up dying anyways. Scott was a shit explorer because the prize for him was bigger than his men's lives. He brought a knife to a gunfight with Amundsen and proceeded to slit his own throat with it. His defenders are many and his sacrifice of his men nothing more than going down in British history as legend. It's not legend, it's stupidity. He was ill-prepared and entered a race he could never win. His planning was not for the attempt he made, and he paid for it with his and five other lives. So he found some rocks that proved that Antarctica was once linked to other continents. So the hell what? It's not worth freezing for you, freezing to death with the life of you and your mates for a rock that probably would have been found later anyways, and really, who cares? He is hailed today because the British love failure and demonize success. There are those that said that if he'd beaten the Norwegians to the pole, they would have had a bit more of a plucky spring in their step, and that would have carried them the extra 11 miles to one-ton depot. Bollocks! Scott was in an entitled chancer, and he paid for it with his life. His great rival Shackleton lived and twice saved the lives of his men. Scott and the acolytes that raise him to legendary status because he didn't get to the pole. And that's a good thing. No, it's not. You know, Shackleton lived to survive to tell the tale, as did his men. We don't have to rely on a self-serving diary that was written just before you snuff it to piece everything together. To be an explorer, you need to fill in the blank bits on the map and further our knowledge of our world. It is not filling your own pockets with someone else's gold and slaughtering everyone you find because the only thing you really care about isn't the black, the blank bits on the map, it's the cash. Scott was and is a failure. 
But we only herald that in this country because we love it. We conflate it with bravery, which, as George MacDonald Fraser memorably has us reminded by Flashman, that bravery is a myth. It is half panic, half lunacy, or in Flashman's mind, all panic. But it pays for it. And in England, you cannot be a hero and be bad. There is a law against it. When someone succeeds, we denigrate them. But die because you're an entitled prick who threw away the lives of your men? Why don't we leave, name our entire Polar Research Institute after you? Robert Falcon Scott, the 6th of June to 1868 to around about 29th of March, whatever, he didn't write it in his diary. Worst explorer ever, major prick. Uh, you have tuned into the History Hack Therapy Couch. Uh, do you feel better now, Matthew? <laughs> I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been looking over the details of that and getting progressively more and more pissed off, uh, which I, I love. I, I, I hate the man. You know, every, everything about him. Is, it, is this the time we tell Matt that he was Clyde's great uncle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just <resist the> giggles. <laughs> yeah. I, the familial thing is clearly the genetics are better when you get to, to uncles and, and nephews. But no, I'm sorry. The, to, the decision making on both expeditions was poor. He, he cost the lives of many men and the guy who brought his men home for some reason isn't as good as him because he's lived. Okay. Do you agree? I thought it was a very strong pitch. I, I was ready to say, I think there was a bit too much success to his name in one form or another to, to, to truly describe him as the worst, uh, explorer. Um, you clearly haven't gone for the um, paleobotanical uh, votes um, with your with your rock criticism, but um, yeah, no. I just, I, 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 my my feeling was yes, competent. No, one way or another, in the in the in the way that a stopped clock is right twice a day, he managed to do a couple of good things, and that might just elevate him above. Uh, some of the others, but but yes, my feeling is that heroic failure should not necessarily be lauded in the way that we do. So yeah, a stronger pitch than I thought at first glance. Actually, I quite like that one. Well, I think to point out that Matt, you know, as Brits, we have to we have to applaud failure because we don't have success. Failure is all we have, so we have to have something to cling on to. But I mean, I'm I'm not entirely won over by that. I think Matt is being slightly harsh, but I do have quite a degree of sympathy with his arguments. I mean. Have you ever heard a Canadian that angry about anything? I don't know. I imagine in the sort of maple syrup shortage of 94, he might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, at least when we get to someone else a little bit later, they at least tried to survive by eating each other. But I mean, I mean, we, he was, he was on a, one of, one of these down the pubs ages ago that someone was pitching him for the best explorer. Of which I, I said at the time that he didn't achieve what he set out to achieve, and in doing so, everybody died, and that can't make him the best explorer. And I think so. There's an element of that that applies now. When I was looking at it earlier, I agree Matt, about the whole Amundsen thing. That's been overplayed. You know, people were accusing him of lying, as if there was some sort of arrangement between the two. And so, I mean, my only question to try and take was Scott solely in charge of logistics. See, this is going to come up in my argument. Um, later. And fuck yeah. And Merrin, you're a control freak like me. Charlie, you're a control freak. If I'm in charge of one of these things, I am not leaving to go to the middle of the arse end of nowhere in charge unless I have done everything and checked everything myself. Anyone who goes, oh yeah, but somebody else was looking after the ponies is a dick. 
No, but he was, I mean, I, he was I, a military. I was just speculating whether you know someone mm. from the people, whether anyone from the Royal Geographic Society came up with the outline plan or something like that. No, I, I did like literally they weigh up with the money. So if there's any shortcomings, it's the guys in command of the expedition. That's my opinion, anyway. I don't they, think they, they they blame the, the guys. Yeah. yeah, they set the objectives and, and the commander on the ground makes the decisions. His orders were unclear, therefore the rendezvous were not made. He was basically a bit of a dick to everybody there who were not Navy men, so everybody hated him. So when an order came through that said, maybe kind of possibly meet us vaguely over there, everyone went, eh, not so much, and left him. I mean, he only took Oates, really, because Oates had money. If it makes you feel any better, all the portraits of him in, in the RGS make him look utterly miserable. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it, I mean, it's a, it's a strong pitch. It's slightly lacking slapstick and the pizzazz of a couple of the other. <laughs> to be honest, which is still, you know. Uh, and Holmes is all about the slapstick and pizzazz. <laughs> let's move on to... Let's go to Heather next. Well, I did my uh, my bit on uh, Pedro de Alvarado, and I am going to annihilate a lot of these words because Spanish was never really my uh, area I excelled in. I can't roll my R's. So he was born in Spain in approximately 1485 and had a twin sister, four brothers, and a half-brother whose nickname was the Bastard. He was a veteran soldier, a brilliant military commander, and skilled in military tactics, but he was greedy, volatile, and cruel. No one escaped his cruelty, which led to the Spanish denouncing his extreme brutality to not only the indigenous, but his own people. He was obsessed with brutality and seemed to only think about war and expeditions. He was the only conquistador who warred against all three um, major indigenous groups of the Aztec, Maya, and Inca. Spanish expeditions into South America brought devastating infectious diseases that kicked off epidemics in the indigenous populace as they had never experienced these diseases and therefore had no immunity. In 1511, Cortez, Alvarado, and Velasquez conquered Cuba, and then he participated in an expedition in seven years later with his nephew, Juan de Guajava, in overall command. They attacked and conquered many Mayan cities, but also did some trading with the indigenous people. They were told of the gold-rich empire of the Aztecs, which sent them, sent them stampeding to confirm this. Alvarado encountered settlements of the Aztec empire and was met with emissaries bearing gold and jewels sent by Montezuma II. He was sent back to Cuba with the news of the great find, where he ingratiated himself to the governor and talked up his achievements to get most of the glory and credit. His nephew was not pleased. In 1519, a new expedition was organized with Cortez in command and Alvarado second in command. They landed in Cozumel and destroyed Mayan temples. The Spanish battled the Maya in numerous battles, which they easily won due to their horses, war dogs, and better, um, better military arms. They began their march inland towards the Aztec capital, and various Indian or indigenous people tried to fight off the Spanish, but failed, leading to alliances. Once at the capital and worried for their safety, the Spanish took Montezuma hostage. Um, soon Cortez had to go back to the Gulf Coast to deal with the arrival of a hostile expedition and left Alvarado in the Aztec capital with orders not to let Montezuma escape. Once Cortez left, Alvarado massacred the unarmed Aztec nobles and priests during the religious festival, killing a couple, somewhere between 
hundred and a couple hundred. He feared the Aztecs were plotting against him, but there wasn't any evidence to support his claim, as the claims he had received were from tortured captives. When Cortez returned, he found the Spanish under siege and was not happy. Montezuma was killed trying to negotiate with his own people, and the Spaniards had to fight their way out of the city. Alvarado was badly wounded during this retreat, which saw the Spanish eventually coming back and conquering the Aztecs. In 1523, Cortez sent Alvarado to invade Guatemala. The Spanish and their indigenous allies stormed through regions, slaughtering, pillaging, and conquering. The Caiche were defeated with many of the royalty among the dead, so they asked for peace and offered a tribute. Alvarado was invited to the capital and set up camp outside the city, where he invited the king and the king elect to visit. Once there, they were taken prisoner. This caused the Caiche to attack the Spanish's indigenous allies and even kill a Spanish soldier. In retaliation, Alvarado had the king and the king-elect burnt to death and then burnt the entire city. When tribute was offered, Alvarado, being the greedy git that he was, demanded gold. If the gold was not received, he'd declare war on the offending tribe, chase them out of the city, burn it, and continue after the indigenous until they asked for peace. The Spanish advanced into what is now El Salvador, only to be defeated and pushed right back into Guatemala. Alvarado was wounded in his thigh, and which handicapped him for the rest of his life. And due to this, Alvarado gave up and left the conquest to someone else. He served as governor of Guatemala and Honduras until his death. He sent enslaved people to work in gold mines, refused to set up foundations for colonial rule, disobeyed direct orders from the crown, and wasn't civic-minded. He ruined his friendship with Cortez by breaking his promise to marry Cortez's cousin Cecilia, although he did take Cortez's mistress as his own. Nice guy. His last expedition to slaughter, subjugate, and strip the natives of their gold happened in 1534. He was beaten to the riches by Pizarro's lieutenant, with whom he bartered most of his ships, horses, and ammo for a large amount of money and returned to Guatemala. He received a call for help from the acting governor of Honduras, and that saw Alvarado fighting off another indigenous resistance and winning. He divided the Indian labor to his soldiers and some of the colonists, and then went back to Guatemala. There, he eventually put together an armada that would sail to China and the Spice Islands. Once the fleet was ready to set sail, he received another call from help from Cristobal, Cristobal de Ornate, whose city was being besieged by a major revolt. Once he was there, he was crushed by a horse in a freak accident. He did not die right away, but succumbed a few days later. Hopefully, he was in excruciating amounts of pain. He is thoroughly hated in Guatemala, and his grave is rarely visited because he is such a brutal, horrible dick. He sounds like a brutal, fucking horrible dick. That is some level of um, carnage to leave in your wake, isn't it, Holmes? Yeah, he's. Um, sorry, my internet went for the first bit. Did he actually? Did he actually sort of explore and discover new lands on his own, or was he just sort of an enforcer that was sent in once someone else had discovered them? It says he was sent to actually do exploring, but I think he felt his prime objective was to just go and subjugate and gain wealth. He was very, very greedy. This is why Matt's Matt's raging again, because Matt, you're saying that conquistadors are not explorers. No, it's in the name, conquistador. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're in a good mood tonight, aren't you? I, I'm just trying to make sure I get in the top three. <laughs> <laughs> if I can undermine everybody else, I stand, I stand a chance. 
But no, conquistadors are not explorers. They're literally there to conquer, rape, pillage, and walk off with as much silver as they can get in their in their big pockets that those parachute pants seem to have. I mean, I, I like hearing about what the Spanish did in South America because all of a sudden it makes what we did in, in the Empire not seem quite so bad. They were on a different level to us. Yeah, just a little bit. Of spite, certainly. Yeah. Um, I've got the, con- the there's a there's a Monty Python spe- sketch, the Conquistador instant coffee, uh, and that's r- running around in my head uh, <laughs> at the moment. Um, yes, I think we're talking about a top cunt here, aren't we? Uh, this is a a dreadful, dreadful human, and um, maybe not an explorer. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. They, um, they estimated that he probably killed between three and four million Indians over a 16 year period. Yeah. That's going beyond slapstick for the purposes of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Who have we got left? All right. Well, go, go, go for it. I'll, I'll let's prime do myself. It. Right. Okay. So, Beth, <laughs> you've picked a conquistador as well, haven't you? Oh, but no, please, because it's so, it's actually ridiculously similar to Heather's. Um, because they're all just top level nasty people, I'm sure we can uh, mm. there's definitely a theme, isn't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. They're just so yeah, right, anyway. Start from, from the beginning. So I, I had picked um a man called Francisco Pizarro. And uh, Pizarro was born in Trujillo in modern-day Extremadura in Spain in the mid-1470s. Oddly enough, through his father, he is actually a second cousin once removed of Hernan, Hernan Cortes. Um, little is known about his early life um, and not really is known where he did and what he did with his life up until the early 1500s when he became a soldier and went to, in 1502, went to Hispaniola with the new Spanish governor of the New World Colony. Um, he served under another conquistador, Alonso de Ojeda, during his expedition to Colombia and was with Vasco Nunes de Balboa when he discovered the Pacific Ocean in 1513. After hearing legends of the great wealth of an Indian civilization, Pizarro formed an alliance with fellow conquistador Diego de Almagro, whose name becomes very important later on in the story. And he sailed down the west coast of South America from Panama. Their first expedition together, they only managed to get as far as what would become present day Ecuador. Returning to Panama, Pizarro wanted to explore further. He wanted to do an expedition of conquest further into South America. But the Spanish governor at the time refused to back the scheme. 
1528, Pizarro sailed back to Spain to ask for the support of Emperor Charles V. Uh, Cortes had recently brought the emperor great wealth through his conquest of the Aztec Empire, and Charles approved Pizarro's plan with the proviso that Pizarro could, after sending a lot of wealth back to Spain, could take whatever he wanted. And so in 1530, he returned to Panama. And at this time, blissfully unaware of what was about to happen to them, high in the Andes mountains of Peru, the Incas had built a dazzling empire that governed a population of 12 million people. They had no writing system, but an elaborate government, great public works and a brilliant agricultural system. And in five years before the Spanish arrival, a devastating war of succession had gripped the empire. And in 1532, the emperor Atahualpa's army defeated the forces of his half-brother, Huascar, in a battle near Cusco. Atahualpa, oh my gosh, I can't say it. I don't envy you. Well done for taking on the Inca names. Atahulapa was consolidating his rule when Pizarro and his group, his band of 180 soldiers, appeared on the horizon. Little did they know what was about to come their way. So starting at the end of 1531, Pizarro had sailed down to what he would later name as Peru, landing at the town of Tumbes. He led his army up to the Andes and encountered the Incas on the 15th of November, 1532, where he reached the Incan town of Cajamarca, where the emperor Atahualpa was enjoying the hot springs. Pizarro invited the emperor to attend a feast in his honour, and the emperor accepted. Having just won one of the largest battles in Inca history, and with an army of 30,000 men at his disposal, Atahualpa thought he had nothing to fear from the bearded white stranger in his 180 men. Pizarro, however, had planned an ambush. On November the 16th, the emperor arrived at the meeting place with an escort of several thousand men, all apparently unarmed. Pizarro sent out a, a priest to exhort the emperor to accept the sovereignty of Christianity and Emperor Charles V. Atahualpa refused, throwing a Bible to the floor handed to him in disgust. Pizarro immediately ordered an attack. Buckling under an assault by the terrifying Spanish artillery, guns and cavalry, because we all know that um, men with sharp, with banging metal sticks will obviously be able to beat these Incas, um, the thousand of Incas were slaughtered and the emperor was captured. Atahualpa offered a full room of treasure as his ransom for release, and Pizarro accepted this condition. Over the course of some days and weeks, 24 tons of gold and silver were brought to the Spanish from throughout the Incan Empire. Although Atahualpa had provided the richest ransom in the history of the world, Pizarro then put him on trial for plotting to overthrow the Spanish, have for having his own half-brother Huscar, who he'd just beaten in, in war, murdered, and for several other lesser charges. They, of course, found him guilty and sentenced him to die. On August the 29th, 1533, the emperor was tied to a stake and Pizarro offered him the choice of how he would like to die. He could either be burned alive or strangled by Garot if he verted, converted to Christianity. And in the hope of preserving his body for mummification and the Incan practices for the dead, Atahualpa chose the latter and an iron collar was tightened around his neck until he eventually died. The Incan armors had retreated, 
and the Spanish army, flush with reinforcements that had arrived not long before, continued onward to the Inca capital of Cusco. Pizarro and his army entered the city in November 1533 and soon conquered the rest of the Incan army and took over the capital. He sacked the city and remaining Inca natives were either killed or enslaved. The great Incan empire had been brought to an end. Huscar's brother Manco Capac was installed as a puppet emperor. Pizarro established himself as Spanish governor of the territory and offered Diego Almagro, his old friend, the conquest of Chile as appeasement for claiming the riches of the Incan civilization for himself. Pizarro established the city of Lima on the coast as well to facilitate communication with Panama. The next year, 1536, Manco Capac had escaped from Spanish supervision and led an unsuccessful uprising that was quickly crushed. And this definitely marked the end of Inca resistance to Spanish rule and Pizarro. And as a reprisal for this uprising, Pizarro ordered that Manco's wife, Cura Oco, be tied to a stake and shot with arrows. Her body was then floated down the river where Manco would find it. He also ordered the murder of 16 captured Inca chieftains. One of them was burned alive. It was also around this time that he took the sister and wife of Atahulpa as his mistresses. In 1538, Almagro finally returned from Chile deeply embittered by the poverty of that country compared to what had been discovered in Peru and demanded his share of the spoils of the former Inca empire, which of course Pizarro refused. He wanted all the spoils and the treasures. Civil war soon broke out between them over the dispute and Almagro seized Cusco. Pizarro sent his half-brother to reclaim the city and Almagro was defeated and put to death. Three years later, in 5th, June the 22nd, 1541, after plotting and scheming, allies and allies of Amalgro's son Diego broke into Pizarro's palace in Lima and killed him. He, Pizarro in return had did kill two attackers and ran through a third, but while trying to withdraw his sword to attack another, was stabbed in the throat multiple times, then fell to the floor where he was stabbed many more. Pizarro, who at this point in time, because we don't know his age, was anywhere between 62 and 70, collapsed on the floor alone, as he should have been, painted a cross in his own blood and cried out for Jesus Christ and died moments after. Pizarro was a truly awful person, an explorer, conquistador, idiot, C-word, whatever you want to call him. You nearly did it. I nearly did it. (laughs) Not only did he destroy an empire, Pizarro brought the smallpox disease with him to Peru, where the disease was unknown and the people had no immunity to it. He also brought steel weapons, gunpowder and horses to Peru. The Incan Empire had been rich in silver and gold and Pizarro and his conquistadors all became very rich. And Pizarro made best out of it all. His share from Atahulpa's ransom alone was £630 of gold, £1,260 of silver, and odds and ends such as Atahulpa's throne, a chair made from 15 karat gold, which weighed £183. At today's rate, the gold alone was worth over $8 million. And this does not include any of the silver or any loot from subsequent endeavours, such as the sacking of Cusco, which certainly at least doubled Pizarro's take. And though Pizarro died before making the journey back to Spain, he shipped gold and silver all the way back to Europe. This man is responsible for the downfalls of one of the world's great historical empires. He brought a disease to a continent that had been greatly untouched by it 
and stole what was rightfully theirs. He is a truly, truly awful man, the worst of men, the worst of explorers. He is a dirtbag of the highest order. I will just say that in terms of how great the Incan Empire was, if you listen to the Peruvians, what they tell you is it just happens to be the one that was around when the Spanish arrived um, because they didn't have a written culture and then they got written down. The guys mm. that built the pyramid that's in the middle of Lima that they found that people were using as a BMX thing, so it was just a big hill, um, They no one even knows who they were, but they were a few hundred years before and because no Spaniards arrived and wrote down who they were. Um, But having said that, they have, um, I think I've said it on here before, in Cusco, which is uh, right on top of um, Machu Picchu, if you're going to start the Inca Trail, it's where you go. They have um, a massive version. It's the South American Last Supper. And apart from the fact that the dinner on the table is a guinea pig, which is highly amusing, um, it tells you what they think of him, that the Judas has Pizarro's face. That's how much they like him uh, in Peru. So he is a dirtbag of massive standing. Lockie, where do you stand on this one? Uh, similar to the last one. I think maybe he does a, just a little bit more exploring in that he gets a bit further uh, than Alvarado. So you could possibly claim he, he does a bit of the old exploration stuff. But, yes, total and utter bastard. Mm. Um, like if you were doing if you were doing the all-time biggest bastard conquistadors i think he might still be on the top of the pile but then I'm, my knowledge on them isn't very good it's just because i heard loads about him when i went round peru kit might know more um no my, my 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 thing's pretty much the same um whenever you talk about uh the incans you have to bear in mind that they were just the people who were in charge at the time mm. um of the not to say America. that they weren't great but no, not at all. I mean, the you, ones you that rose, the rose that... and fell on either side were also about this, and, and not that far off. I don't think. Absolutely. Um, and they, they weren't particularly nice people in themselves. It has to be said as well. They they did like to make flutes out of their enemies' bones and things. Um, but yeah, Pizarro is a dick. There is no getting around it. And when you look at what the conquistadors did, um, the the two names that always jump out are really Hernan Cortez and uh, and Pizarro. Um, and for me, Pizarro probably is a little bit more of a dick than Cortez, although Cortez, because of the impact that he had on the entire continent in really encouraging people to go there and do what ended up happening. Um, I always feel that he's sort of like the instigator of all of these people, all of these truly awful people. Yeah, total shithead, but n- not sure it falls into our remit tonight, Holmes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of those sentiments. There's one thing I wanted to pick Beth up on. She said that I can't remember who it was or who it was with, but they discovered the Pacific Ocean in 1514. Which... Um, Balboa, it says here, Balboa. The Pacific Ocean is 750 million years old and covers a third of the Earth. I'm sure that they can't be the, the first people to come across it. I just, I like. It was when they found it, and that's the important bit. <laughs> Cool. Okay, so I have a feeling we're going back into the realms of more exploring than conquering now. Uh, I'm going to go to the next one because I know this one involves accents and I can't wait for this. Chris? Um, Only one accent, but um, going from where Matt... is going to get his German on, aren't you? Just a little bit. Um, and also to go, where, whereas Matt spent some time slagging off my, my, my much loved, uh, Royal Navy, 
I'm going to say that the where the British Navy failed, the German Army are going to go that little bit further in the fuck-ups. Um, on the uh, 21st of September 1914, uh, the German governor of New Guinea surrendered to the Australian invaders, and the German-led army uh, laid down their weapons, although the Navy kept fighting. But Oberleutnant Hermann Detzner was not willing to accept the surrender and uh, continued with his mission to explore inner New Guinea. Um, um, Detzner had been born in 1882, middle-class family, his dad's a dentist. Um, he went to a good school. He joined the Bavarian Pioneer Corps in 1901, became a surveyor in the Reichsprotectorate. Uh, and in 1908 and 9, he was part of an Anglo-German survey into Cameroon, uh, which then went into the Niger, Niger Valley and uh, frontiers, where he was gained quite a reputation. Um, in 1913, he was assigned to uh, land a mission to explore the inner areas of New Guinea, of German New Guinea, or Kaiser Wilhelm Land, um, which the settlers hadn't really explored when Germany managed to get it, because it's an uh, impenetrable jungle, it's uh, full of hostile locals, and um, really nasty malaria, so everyone stayed by the coast. Um, Detzner's um, reputation as a methodical engineer um, and a surveyor, and despite his small stature, he was considered to be strong and wary and a perfect choice for this mission. So Oberleutnant Detzner uh, left the rubble on um, uh, January 1914 and arrived and left uh, rubble for inner uh, New Guinea in February with his team of um, Germans and locals. Um, they go forward and survey where the border was, only to find out that um, when they drew the lines on the map, Germany had managed to get an extra 650 metres off the British. On the 11th of November 1914, one of the native carriers um, had gone gone off on brief leave, came back and said, had a letter from an Australian officer saying that New Guinea had fallen and that he should uh, surrender, that Detzner and his team should surrender themselves. But Detzner wouldn't take this and continued his exploration, mainly to cause as much trouble for the Australians as possible. So they, they head north, um, they do some whitewater rafting. His team consists of uh, 25 local police officers, 45 uh, carriers, two servants, an interpreter, and the only other German, Sergeant uh, Conrad. Uh, they fight some locals and they, until they eventually come to uh, Settelberg, where they find a German Luther, Lutheran mission and uh, set up a camp. And the plan was to go on a Robin Hood-style existence of moving around the continent, looking at things, and then... Um, attacking the Australians and just generally trying to stay hidden, which he managed to do until February 1915, where Conrad was captured because he'd had malaria and was in a hospital. And then Detzner disappears, only to reappear in uh, 1919, 5th January, in full dress uniform with 20 surviving soldiers um, at an Australian camp to surrender because he's heard that the war is over. He goes back to Germany, he gives speeches about what he discovered in New Guinea. And he, um, because Germany, obviously having lost the war, needed some heroes. And some of the um, great officers, such as General von Leto Vorbeck, who managed to elude the Allies for four years in East Africa, and was never defeated, really, in campaign. His book did really well. Detzner decides to um, write his own book, Wir ja unter Kannibalen, 
uh, basically four years under the cannibals, in which he, he talks about all the things that he discovered in New Guinea. He is given, he's, um, made a promoted to major, awarded the Iron Cross first and second class. He is, um, given an honorary doctorate for, um, uh, expeditions that bordered on the miraculous. The Leipzig um, Geographic Society give him a, the Edward Vogel Medal. He also gets another medal, uh, the Nachtjägel Medal from the German Geographical Society. He lectures. His book goes on, discusses vast amounts of information uh, and links it a lot back to Germany. He he apparently found a flower that resembled the Edelweiss up in the hills. He found a, he found a, a tribe whose language was so close to German that he labelled it Unterdeutsch. And he also uh, found that the natives wore black, white and red, and they were all really pro-German. He mapped whole regions, discovered valleys. He found the water table, or the rivers heading north to south. He, this man was an absolute hero. But <laughs> um, his work became a little bit criticised because he didn't have any of his original notes, because they'd all been captured or lost. He and in 1929, the missionary Christian Kaiser and another one called Otto Thiel reported that Detzner had had not spent the war hiding uh, at different camps around the island. He'd actually hidden near the mission for the whole damn time. More more to that, that Kaiser was actually a genuine explorer. He had actually mapped large areas of New Guinea. He'd lived with the tribes. He'd written a dictionary to translate some of the local languages to German and had regularly spoken to the, communicated with the German Geographical Society. And basically, Detzner had lifted his work and peddled it off as his own. The Austria, um, also a very angry letter was written in response to one of Detzner's um, speeches to uh, an Australian newspaper from uh, apparently one of the Australian uh, garrison, who said, we knew where he was, we could have got him whenever we wanted to, we didn't really consider waving a German flag, marching your men up and down the jungle, singing Wacht am Rhein as a way of, um, of actually being a rebel. And, we, and he was also just a civilian, really, so we just ignored him. Um, <laughs> nothing much really. He, he, he measured one of the mountains to be 1,000 um, feet shorter than it actually was, which is a surveyor. You'd think he'd probably get right. And basically, he when all these things came out, he had to. He suddenly realised that he he was he'd been rumbled, and so he resigned his position with the German um, Geographical Board. And in in his letter, he wrote this. I apologise to all the Germans listening, but I wish to state that my book contains a number of misrepresentations regarding my journeys in New Guinea. As the book in question is a scientific report, in part only. It is primarily a fictional account of my experiences, and it contains passages that uh, do not correspond with uh, the facts. Uh, he withdrew from public life, um, resigned from the Geographical Society. A copy of his book was annotated by him as to what was true and what wasn't, uh, with great lines along the side of it, include, unfortunately, the whole section about the Edelweiss Um And also, they had to remove all the maps, because, again, it was all bollocks. Um, <laughs> Uh, Detzner may not have killed anyone, killed any of his party, got lost, accidentally committed genocide, that sort of thing. But as an explorer, it's pretty crap that he did spend four... I mean, he did try to escape to Dutch, the Dutch part of Guinea, but ran across an ex-German warship that was now belonging to the Australians. He just didn't... He didn't do half of what he said he did. 
which you know if as an explorer surely you need to go and do some exploration from time to time and that's germany's greatest explorer Holmes. it's an interesting one um I mean, I, I looked at him earlier, and they, they, he went to stay at a Lutheran mission, didn't he? Is that right? Yeah, when, yeah. From when the war started. And they said that he was there throughout. He didn't go anywhere. No, no. I mean, apparently he did attempt to try and canoe out, but he didn't really go that far, if at all. No, and nowhere near as far as he claimed to have gone. You know, I just wonder whether we can, at least the others who we've talked about tonight, have done stuff, whether they've been in, incompetent or absolute psychopaths, but he's not even done anything. But, but the point is he peddled himself as the greatest explorer of German New Guinea, and he was even uh, post-World War II, his book it was getting referenced as um, discovering things. So the, the world believed he was an explorer, it just happened not to be. <laughs> kind of half-arsed it. I, I'm... I'm, I'm... Okay, boring question about sort of logistics. How, you know, was he like supplied from anywhere or was it, was it all kind of attached to the mission? How did he, how did he it, it was, survive there for four years? And pretty much for, um, he claims that he helped, he lived off the land and peddled with the natives. Um, uh, yeah, he, he, um, he, the Aust- he claims that he, he, he worked with the natives and lived off the land. But the Australians claim that, and the loot and the uh, missionaries said that he basically hung around there and ate, ate rations from them. So he wasn't supplied by anyone. I like this one. I think this is good. I think just for just for the for the and um, the brass neck, the plagiarism, the not doing very much. Doesn't have pizzazz and slapstick though, does it? Well, no. Well, running around the jungle with the Australians possibly chasing him could be. It's very sort of Benny Hill, yeah. but the Australians weren't really that interested. They, they <laughs> uh, shoot off site order. There's some crazy German running around out there. We just ignore him. <laughs> he had a flag. He did have a flag, and he had them all singing German folk songs and Vaktum Rhein where possible. But yeah, <laughs> this is this is where I see you Life. in 15 years' time, but on the Isle of Sheppey. Well. <laughs> I did when I was at university. My my plan had been to live in British Columbia, and uh, one of my friends said, "Yes, we can just picture it now. There'll be a log cabin up up a valley somewhere that every morning the German flag shoots up, and everyone comes out to sing. You come out and sing the German national anthem, and then go back to your room to read." I can't tell you how alarmed the Polish person in the room looks right now. <laughs> he's talking about Imperial Germany, Alina. He's not like not the Nazi flag. He's talking like no. World War One. <laughs> <laughs> she's like i surrender please don't hurt me <laughs> don't invade me please <laughs> hang on on the Too... group chat the other day you were you were pointedly inviting him to in- invade you i'm that kid now could be a history hack love affair coming up after lockdown that's all i'm saying right never <laughs> Oh. <laughs> okay, we got four left to go, uh, including mine and Charlie's and Dorman, I think. But let's go to Clive next because uh, he just tried to steal your thunder with the accent there. Douglas Mawson is an Australian national hero, probably more lauded in that country than it, than his contemporaries Scott or Shackleton are in England. And yet his performance in the field was every bit as woeful and unsuccessful as those two intrepid fellows. In short, he went a long way to 
to go not very far for no discernible gain, saw all those under him die unpleasant deaths, suffered immensely and crawled home without actually achieving much. A true Australian hero. Douglas Mawson, as is befitting for a great Australian, was born in Yorkshire in 1882. His family moved to Sydney when he was a child. He was educated there and became a geologist. Going all Dr. Kit for a moment, he is the first person to, to have identified the mineral Davidite, which is which, in a remarkably impressive act of humility, he named not for himself, but for another Australian geologist, Professor Edgeworth David. After lecturing at the University of Adelaide for a year, he volunteered to join Shackleton's 1907 Nimrod expedition. Interestingly, Professor David was the chief scientist on this expedition, and he and Mawson were among the very first to step foot on the magnetic South Pole in 1909. Mawson turned down the offer to go on Scott's ill-fated South Pole expedition. Instead, he got his own gig together. Mawson was not motivated like Scott or Shackleton by the idea of planting flags to show where he'd been. He was not a showman. He was a scientist, and his interest was very much more focused on scientific discovery rather than imperial expansion or jingoistic glory. His funding came from governments and from commercial concerns interested in exploiting possible mining opportunities in Antarctica. The sailing yacht Aurora set sail from Hobart on 2nd December 1911, taking with them an aeroplane, a Vickers REP-type monoplane. Sadly, the plane was damaged before departure, and so did not become, as had been planned, the first plane to fly in Antarctica. It was brought along to be used as an ice tractor to be propelled along on skis over the ice and snow pulling stuff. Naturally, when they arrived, they found the engine didn't work. And so the Australasian Antarctic expedition landed on Cape Denison on 8th January 1912. Cape Denison turned out to be one of the windiest places on earth. Winds averaged over 50 miles an hour. They set about building huts. This at least they did very well. The huts are still there today. Mawson's plan was simple, set up camp and acclimatize and then split up into five groups and go off exploring and mapping and seeing how the wondrous and virgin landscape could be exploited for industrial gain. Mawson put himself in charge of one group, the Far Eastern Party, along with two men whose fortes were husky handling and skiing. Lieutenant Belgrave Ninnis of the Royal Fusiliers, a young chap from Streatham, was the main husky handler. Xavier Mertz was a Swiss cross-country skiing champion and most noted for the idiosyncratic way in which he spoke English. Jolly bands all around. It wasn't until 10th November 1912 they set off. By then they'd wintered in their windy base, holed up in their huts. Mertz must have been grateful to get away from all the mockery of his accent. They made good progress, pushing east for five weeks, and 300 miles along the coastline, mapping and collecting geological samples as they went. But then it started to go awry. One of their huskies gave birth and ate her own puppies. Out of nowhere, a seabird crashed into Ninnis's sledge. Things were getting strange. And then they got worse. Ninnis suffered snow blindness and an abscess in a finger which Mawson lanced with a knife and without anaesthetic. Three times Ninnis almost fell into crevasses. In weird coincidence, they entered the Ninnis Glacier. That should have been an omen. 
they camped and Mawson decided to abandon one of the sledges and shift supplies onto the other two. Here he made his cardinal error. He put all of the fittest dogs onto one sledge and placed the bulk of their essential supplies, like tents and foods, on that sledge. The other lightest sledge was to go first and trailblaze. Ninnis, the husky man, took command of the heavier sledge. Mawson led on the lighter one, and poor old Mertz, no doubt now really pissed off with the constant bants about his English, skied off ahead. Mertz skied over a crevasse. Mawson followed in his lighter sledge. Ninnis jogging along his, alongside his sledge, no doubt to save the energy of his dogs, but not wearing skis or snowshoes. The force of his footsteps, undissipated by the sledge or skis or snowshoes, broke the snow bridge at the mouth of the crevasse. Down went Ninnis. Down went his dogs. Down went the sledge. Down went the bulk of their supplies. Mawson wrote, There was no sound from behind except a faint plaintive whine from one of the dogs, which I imagined was in reply to a touch from Ninnis's whip. I remember addressing myself to George, the laziest dog in my own team, saying, You will be getting a little of that too, George, if you're not careful. The others moved forward, oblivious of the disaster, until Mertz looked back. He hurried back to the edge of the crevasse. Two sets of sledge tracks led to the edge. One, sledge, one set went beyond it. He and Mawson crawled gingerly to the edge and peered down, 150 foot or so, Below, they could make out two dogs on an ice shelf, one injured, the other dead. There was no sign of Ninnis. For five hours, they called down to him, but there was never any response. They recited the funeral service from the Book of Common Prayer over the abyss, and then moved on. Practically all the food had gone, speared, bit, tent. We considered it a possibility to go to winter quarters by eating dogs. So nine hours after the accident started back, but terribly undercut. May God help us. They initially made good progress, but then Mawson went snow blind, and Mertz bathed his eyes in a mixture of zinc sulfate and cocaine. Luckily for them, the cocaine had not been on Ninnis's sledge. Dogs started dying, and as each dog died, they would carry it on their sledge until the end of the day and then cook it. They boiled them to tenderize them, then ate every scrap of each dog, including the slothful and hapless George. They even ate the paws. And this, of course, was Mawson's next big error. As any schoolchild knows, one must never, under any circumstances, however hungry you are, eat a polar bear's liver, as it contains such a concentration of vitamin A that it will poison you. What Mawson didn't know is that the same applies to huskies. Their physical condition worsened. The skin was peeling off our bodies, and a very poor substitute remained, which burst readily and rubbed raw in many places. One day, I remember Mertz ejaculated, just a moment, and then reached over and lifted from my ear a perfect skin cast. I was able to do the same for him. As we never took off our clothes, the peeling of hair and skin from our bodies worked down into our under trousers and socks, and regular clearances were made. Mertz really suffered. They rested up for a day with, a, with only their sleeping bags for shelter. Mertz became delirious. Diarrhea followed, and he shat on his sleeping bag. Mawson cleaned him and it up, but the bag was now wet. They tried to move forward, but to no avail. 
Mertz died. Mawson was alone and not in good shape. After burying Mertz, he made his sledge smaller and fashioned a sail. My whole body is apparently rotting from want of proper nourishment. Frostbitten fingertips, festerings, mucous membrane. Half nose gone, saliva glands of mouth refusing duty, skin coming off the whole body. The skin came away from the soles of his feet. He taped it back on. He fell into a crevasse but had fashioned a harness attached to his shed, sledge, which caught him. He then made a rope ladder to make extracting himself easier, and the next day he had use for it. By the end of the January, he was covering four miles a day. His speed didn't increase when he found a supply of food left by the search party, although his spirits must have been raised. And then he caught sight of the base camp and the aurora. But as soon as he did, the weather closed in again, and it took him five days to complete his journey. He arrived in time to see the aurora sailing away. He had missed it by but a couple of hours. Fortunately... Five of his expedition members had volunteered to stay on, just in case. Morse, just in case, and Mawson spent the Antarctic winter recovering and swapping tales with them before being picked up the next summer. Back in Oz, he got married and knighted, and then came to England, where he served in the British Army as a major in the First World War. He worked in the Ministry of Munitions. Major Mawson of the Ministry of Munitions may not have not may not have seen action, but he certainly alliterated. He led one further expedition and worked as a professor of geology, retiring in 1952 and dying in 1958. By international treaty, no one is permitted to mine in Antarctica. The whole premise of his expedition was for nothing. (laughs) But, oh, my God, the Yorkshire accent. Where did you get it? Have you been watching Last of the Summer Wine on gold? It was kind of just a generic northern accent. I can't. It was I... it was the fucking wind sound effects in the background. You know what? If we get a history hack TV channel going, you have got to be news correspondent <laughs> Clive because that was just fucking epic, wasn't it, Holmes? Yeah, it, it was very good. I, I I looked Mawson up this afternoon and I thought it was quite a, a heroic story and I was quite moved by it. I mean, that's all fucking gone out the window now. Obviously, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh... <laughs> I think, I think to call him incompetent is slightly, slightly harsh. You know, it, it was a great feat for him to get back. I don't think the impression for the limited amount of research I did was that he probably, you know, he was probably more better planned than other ones that we've talked about so far today. But he made some absolutely monumental cock-ups, which cost two people their lives. This is true. Poor little, poor little Belgrave News. He was 23, I think. Good looking young chap as well. Well, he was six foot four as well. He stood out, really stood out. But, but to be fair, wasn't that blamed? He's the guy who fell down the crevice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I read earlier was that he was told to stand on the sled runners and not run by the side because the force that individual feet would have would cause the ice to collapse and you'd fall down the crevice. So. If he was told that, then he can't, you can't blame Mawson for that, can you? But, but the other theory is that he should have been told to wear snowshoes or skis if he was going to run. He shouldn't just... He had literally no They've been going all day. They must have seen him running. He had no experience of polar region. I mean, I, I noticed, Clive, that you kept the fact that Xavier Merckx was a lawyer from the rest of the group. <laughs> I, I've had... I've, 
believe me, I really cut out so much of that because it beforehand it was about twice as long and there was a lot more from Mawson's diaries that I was going to read out. But the fact that Mertz was a lawyer was very much in there before. I'm sorry I missed that. I didn't, I didn't realise taking a lawyer with you was part of the required thing for these expeditions. You, were you not asked to go along with Sir Randall Fiennes, Clive, in some of his <laughs> earlier days? Strangely not, no. Though actually I think having a lawyer with you at any one of those times would be very useful. A lawyer could have pointed out that the Antarctic Treaty prevents mining anyway, so they needn't have gone in the first place. And also, I'm sure you, I'm sure Mawson wouldn't have been irritated by your constant references to him breaching the Health and Safety at Work Act. Yeah, then risk assessment <laughs> before going anywhere yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Just fill in, just fill this in before you eat the husky liver. Yeah, lucky. Yeah, I think the, the research into um, husky liver consumption was fairly valuable exploration work, wasn't it? I'm glad you mentioned the shed. I don't, I don't think you'd be a proper Yorkshireman without having a shed. <laughs> um, really, whether it was an intentional thing or not. You think hiding in the shed might have um, uh, provided some useful shelter, uh, actually. Um, no, I think <laughs> Holmes kind of covered what I was going to say, so I loved it. Thank you, Clive. That was excellent. Well done, Clive. Well done. Um, I won't go next because I'm, I'm going to the North Pole uh, or that kind of way. So let's go to let's go to Charlie next because I don't have any idea. Charlie wasn't even going to come and I just basically berated <laughs> her and sent her Wikipedia links until she agreed to come tonight. Please come down the pub. It's going to be fun. Now I'm going to keep it really short and sweet tonight and uh, my excuses for your consideration are that I now have 10, count them 10 pages left to edit out of a 300 odd page novel and I'm at the stage of editing now where I'm pretty sure I'm terrible uh so that's happening and also in 10 pages time that means you're sending me a draft right (laughs) oh my goodness yeah you'd have to love me a lot to read this but yeah that'd be amazing so there's that and then there's also the fact that this week's topic walks that very thin line between history and geography. Now, where geography and I are concerned, if you even give me directions somewhere, it's like the sound of Charlie Brown's teacher. (laughs) That is, that's all I've got when when it comes to to geography. So I thought, okay, right, let's let's try and find someone who amuses me and makes me laugh because you wanted slapstick, you wanted a bit of humour. In my wheelhouse of the Stuart monarchy in the 17th century, any any mission that was sent off by a Stuart monarch tends to be, shall we say, problematic. So I'm not going there. I'm going instead to... King Christian IV of Denmark and Norway. Now, there was a link with him in the Stuart monarchy, which is kind of how I found him. He came over and hung out with James I at his court. And apparently everyone got so pissed on that occasion that they were doing one of their court masks where, you know, you'd have the the king and the queen and the the nobles of the court dressing up and play, making a little play. Everyone was so pissed they actually fell off the stage. So that that amused me a lot. And King Christian is the kind of dickhead I really, really warm to. So he, this I don't know why I find this so funny. He wanted to send a mission over to Greenland to locate the lost eastern norse settlement so the vikings from norway the norsemen had um 
had colonized that part of Greenland on the eastern side um, back in like, uh, I'm looking it up officially, AD 985 to AD 1000. So long, long time ago. He wanted this back. So he sends a mission over from Denmark to Greenland, which is where I had to get a map up to sort of figure this out because, again, you know, not not brilliant with this kind of thing. So he sends an expedition up to go um, to go to the eastern side of Greenland and find this lost Norse settlement and take it back for his country. They have a massive problem because, you know, there's a load of Arctic ice, which is falling off of Greenland at that point from the eastern side going south which is basically into the path of where these boats are trying to go um and he sends this guy called James Hall to go and find this settlement he swings down so far south that he ends up on what he thinks is the eastern side of Greenland but it's actually Canada so he ends up he realizes shit we're in Canada not good goes back tells the king sorry we we overswung, we missed it. So he sends them back again and they do exactly the same thing again and they end up in Canada again. So they go back and they say, really sorry, couldn't find the eastern side of Greenland. We ended up in Canada again. We also kind of went off on a bit of a tangent and looked for this island called the Island of Bus or Bus, which doesn't actually exist. They didn't find that. So King Christian, in his wisdom, says, go back again. And the third time, they completely miss Greenland, which is quite big, and end up in this sort of little strait called Frobisher's Bay in Canada. So three times he sends them, three times they screw it up. He then decides to send them off to find the Northwest Passage, seeing as they seem to keep finding Canada. It's like, well, go go that way and go into into the New World. And they miss that as well and all die. So They should have had that bloke who discovered the Pacific, because he had an eye for detail. <laughs> exactly. So I'm, I'm submitting, I mean, obviously, James Hall is the guy who had, who was in charge of the boat. He was sailing the boat but it was king christian the fourth of uh denmark and norway i keep saying sweden don't i because we did our episode on queen christina of sweden this is you're all scandinavian out aren't you this is why i keep getting confused but king christian the fourth of denmark and norway was pretty rubbish he was indeed I told you it'd be short and sweet yeah <laughs> lucky doesn't he also spank a shit ton of money I mean, on things like this, but you know, I think this you, at this point the Danish Empire is like up there, and under King Christian, it, it, it starts kind of dropping, and then I think it's it's one of the Fredericks, isn't it, that follows him, and then it, it kind of really goes down after that. So this is this is the start of a slide for Denmark, but um, <laughs> I yeah, I think Christian's not really the explorer. I'm not sure he really he really counts, but kind of as a as a, as a manager of the thing, I mean, this does suck. <laughs> there we go. I'm out. Holmes? Yeah, sorry, what what time was this taking place? I missed oh, Yeah, sorry. So this was um the three missions were between sixteen oh five and sixteen oh seven. So yeah. Sort so of the kind of time going over to the new world. So by which time sort of navigational techniques had improved sig- significantly compared to when the Vikings originally found Greenland? <laughs> Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, was there ever any, any explanations as to why they continually failed to find things? 
No, not that I could find. They they just I think part of the problem was is that they as soon as they got close to Greenland, they had all that all the drift of the ice coming down. There was also a slight problem in that the British owned um some of those trade routes and you can't really be crossing trade routes without getting into into big trouble. So I think we we might have been partly to blame for it, but um just ending up in, in the, the same wrong place three times, I, I just love. At least they found their way back. Yes. Yeah, better That's, than the guy from Mali. Yeah. <laughs> That's the funny thing. I couldn't find how they found their way back. I don't know if did they did they double back or did they continue and go up, round, and then back. I mean, you'd have to buy me a globe for me to understand this. <laughs> right, okay. Um, there's only two left. It's me and Dorman left to go. After you, Dorman. Okay. <laughs> Let's end with a nice bag of bastards that is Christopher Columbus. Uh, <laughs> I would argue not a conquistador, therefore an explorer. Or at least okay. I would argue the later guys fall more into the conquistador bracket than this guy does. I'm not, I'm going to spare you the story because we all know it. I'll go through it in brief detail. But the propaganda tells a tale of a man was pioneering in his belief that the world was round and as such he pleaded and pleaded in European courts and was cast aside by these flat earth believing royals until eventually he found sympathy by charming Isabella of Castile and in doing so was granted three ships by the Christian monarchs and in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He happened across America where his subordinates against his wishes of course treated the natives terribly. He returned to Spain and died in poverty. And of course, that is all complete bollocks. Um, he, I think you can consider him an explorer as his actions do take place in what's known as the age of exploration. And, but everything else is just wrong. So Chris Columbus, he, yes, he thought the world was round. But so did everyone else at this point. There's this great myth that the medieval period was full of flat earthers. If the Egyptians had figured this out, most learned men in this period had also figured it out, and women for that fact, including Isabella of Castile. And what's particularly unique about Columbus, and I think that's where the incompetence really comes in, is he thought his expedition was work because he was bad at maths. He thought the world was about two-thirds the size it actually was. So what this means then is if America hadn't been in the way Columbus would have drowned in the Pacific because his maths was off. His expedition was doomed to fail as soon as he set off. And that is why he was laughed out of every European court when he went searching for funding. He's supposed to have been given three ships. His pitch was so bad, he was actually only given two, the Nina and the Pinta, both of which were rust buckets. They were barely seaworthy, or I guess woodworm buckets, if you want something more accurate. And somehow he managed to con a local captain of the far larger and better conditioned Santa Maria into following him across the Atlantic as well. And had he not had this much larger ship with its capacity and its provisions and you know, actual navigators, he probably wouldn't have made it across the Atlantic at all. So that's two strikes of him being fantastically lucky. During his voyage, he sort of preempted his later dickishness by promising the first person to spot land a vast reward and then claiming that he spotted land himself. This is some Michael Scott level of management here. Um, he does some vaguely exploratory things upon landing in the Caribbean. Um, nothing really of note. Uh, he does take some slaves and parrots and other bits and bobs and heads back to Spain. 
And given the fact he is supposed to be bringing back spices, this is not particularly inspiring for his patrons. Uh, from a military perspective, he also establishes a fort whose inhabitants are subsequently massacred because he doesn't leave them with any orders on how to deal with the natives. And on the whole, he's just this terrible figure and terrible commander. And I'm only really focusing on the first um, voyage here because I'm conscious of time. At least Pizarro and Cortez won some battles. Columbus could barely fight his way out of a wet paper bag. Um, obviously, he is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And whether or not the people who advocate that there's, there's a black legend surrounding Spain and they like to kind of put Columbus on a little bit of a pedestal and say he wasn't all that bad. This is nonsense. Columbus is directly responsible for the deaths of thousands and indirectly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands. This cannot be overstated enough. It is he who sets the tone for what is to come. And if he hadn't set the tone for what to come, he wouldn't have been put under arrest by Isabella of Castile, who was a huge advocate of Native American rights once these people were, dis and I quote, discovered in heavy quotations by Columbus. So the, the way he treats them and the way his men treat them, he's immediately <laughs> thrown in prison. And only Ferdinand eventually lets him out. Might even be after Isabella dies. I can't remember exactly the circumstances behind it. He didn't die in poverty. He died with the title Admiral of the Ocean Sea that was bestowed upon him. But all of this sort of mythology comes about as a, through a nefarious cult that was dredged up uh, in the 20th century to try and I think primarily by Italian-Americans who are trying to really put forward that he was from Genoa and he was an Italian and draw that connection. So obviously we still have to endure Columbus Day to this day. But this guy is a grade-A wankstain and he deserves to be treated as such. I've got no time for him. And the fact that he inspires these conquistadors and galumphing oafs that come in his wake is only increasing the merit of my argument. I admit this isn't my best pitch, but I just got kind of angry doing this. So, say la vie. Galumphing what? Because that's it. Oath. Galumphing oath is my new go-to phrase for people who fuck me off. I love it. Uh, I like That was like Matt's. That was just a rant, and it was good. I like it. Uh, Heather, you have to celebrate Columbus Day, right? You're new. Holmes, what do you make of Christopher Columbus? Yeah, in, interesting enough, he came up in the best Explorer one that we did ages ago, and I basically made the same points that Dorman has just made. I mean, the main thing is that, I mean, I missed the first box. I was going to get a beer because I couldn't wait until the end. Um, but, you know, he was originally, he set out to discover India. He went, yeah. he went completely the wrong way and just chanced upon, upon America. Um, and also, he didn't discover. Like, he discovered. Where did he actually land? It wasn't North America, was it? It was. No, it was the Caribbean. It was the Caribbean, Hispaniola area. Well, so I've always sort of slightly misunderstood the sort of American obsession with him, as you've said, and as you also said, you know, not only was it he, he brought a sort of terrible play to the New World as well, which um, yeah, the Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm. <laughs> I'm persuaded by this one, um, but I'm conscious that I've kind of run these arguments on of these before. That's my only concern. Okay, Lockie. Yeah, um, having grown up, well, not necessarily grown up, being a student in Bristol um, where the focus is on John Cabot uh, and his kind of discovery of America proper, um, I'm, I'm with you. I think Columbus is massively overrated. Um, I think... In terms of what an explorer is, though, what do they seek out? Fame and notoriety for sort of discovering stuff? I think he, he does kind of fit the bill in, in that sort of sense, in a strict 
um, sense of discovery. So I don't think it can quite be the worst, but overrated, certainly. Well, it would be like if Scott had ended up in the North Pole. Yeah. I mean, the, I guess it's... Or, or even like, worse, like the, the Isle of Lundy. Scott's yeah. <laughs> it's like... it, it, it did kind of do the job. I guess it'd be like saying... Peter Shilton's the worst goalkeeper England have ever had. Yes, I mean, like he was around for a long time and was kind of famous as a goalkeeper. Had had a couple of howlers uh, along the way. I'm not sure I could say he's the worst. Getting out jumped by an Argentine midget, obviously quite high along, among the list of howlers. But um, well, like when he's going to cheat and use his fucking hand. I suppose, I suppose the other issue with all this, with this type of thing as well, is that we're all going about it being discovered that completely overlooks the fact that thousands of people already live there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you're going to go for original European discovery, it's Irishman St. Brendan the Navigator who definitely discovered it in the 6th century. Um, but, you know, not that I'm biased. <laughs> okay, we've reached the last one, which is mine. Um, and not since Kevin Spacey has a career seeing such an ignominious end. This is all about an obscure back passage in Canada. No, it's nothing to do with Matt. The Vikings are thought to be the first to try and fail more than a thousand years to find this Northwest Passage. A sea trading route from the Atlantic to Asia had been seriously in the minds of bonkers Europeans since about the 1500s. Some people think you're going to find vast open water carrying you all the way to the east and the riches of the Orient. Uh, this isn't totally batshit crazy because it's based on the North Atlantic drift which carries warmer water from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to the coast of Norway or so says Wikipedia um, or they think they've just got to beat away through pack ice. Either way they're pretty sure they can get round the top of North America um, and in the olden days before Netflix this mesmerised people as much as the idea of the moon landings did in the 1960s which makes John Franklin an even less inspiring choice. He was not the first choice. That was Sir Edward Parry, but he was fed up with the Arctic. Next was Sir James Clark Ross, who had discovered the magnetic North Pole. Then it was James Fitzjames, who was 32 and considered too young. He'd end up serving under Franklin and dead for his trouble. So that as they whittled away all of the good ideas, what were they left with? Well, a fat, balding chap who was not firing anybody up these days. The average lifespan of a man in the 1840s was put at about 40.2. John Franklin was 59. This was the equivalent of sending your great-great-granddad into outer space in charge of the rocket. He was so old by the standard of the day that he'd fought with Nelson at Trafalgar. 128 men who later froze their bits off might have rued the day a sniper missed him in 1805 three times. The fact that his wife was desperate for him to go to the Arctic for several years should tell you everything you need to know about the, about the poor old sod. He had been to the Arctic before, let's give him that, even if it does mean that he should have had, like, had some idea about how fucking cold it was. You'd be forgiven for assuming that he might have thought about perhaps dressing his men up more like natives instead of someone who was popping round to Sainsbury's on a slightly chilly afternoon. He'd been three times and twice he'd been in charge. Uh, he'd almost died. According to the press, he was the man who ate his leather boots to hold off starvation in 1821. That mission killed more than half the men involved and it may have been that they ended up killing and eating them. Either way, this is clearly not your bag. Find a different fucking hobby. 
Now, this shouldn't be that tough, finding this Northwest Passage, as most of the work had been done already. He's literally just looking for the last bit. And he had the tools as well. No excuses there. The Navy didn't send him off half-cocked. He had ships that had been to Antarctica before. Uh, a rebus, which basically represents the personalization, uh, the personification of darkness. And terror. Talk about tempting fate. This was incredibly... Da- oh, so despite their ominous names, they were better equipped than any other ship that had tried to find this back passage. They had steam engines, a heating system, another to dil- distill drinking water, special rudders and propellers that could be retracted for protection so they didn't get stuck or damaged. They were comfortable too, and the ship's libraries had over a thousand books, so they weren't even going to get bored. This was incredibly dangerous terrain though, but getting into trouble did not necessarily mean death. If you had a smart bloke in charge and you weren't in a particularly shit spot, you should be okay. Unfortunately, John Franklin was not a smart man and he managed to land his ships up off the top of King William Island where there was nothing to kill and eat. A smart man would have listened to the locals. These specific winters we're talking about were so bad that even the Inuit remember them as particularly parky. They still blame them on the cursed white men who unleashed malevolent spirits on their land. When the Inuit tried to warn the Franklin expedition about the weather, they ignored them, the people that had lived on this land for generations. So he promptly sailed his modern, well-equipped ships into the middle of the ice and got stuck there for a year. That's okay, though, right? They can wait this out. They're equipped for three years. No, the tinned preserved food was supplied by the Victorian equivalent of Lidl and was mostly poisonous. After being ice banned for more than a year, uh, Erebus and Terror were abandoned in April 1848, by which point Franklin and nearly two two dozen others had already died. The survivors, now led by his deputy, Francis Crozier, and the Arebus captain, which is the poor James Fitzjames, set out for the Canadian mainland and disappeared. Thanks to the incompetence of John Franklin and his total unsuitability for his role as an explorer, 130-odd men died of a varying combination of scurvy, the prevention of which had been figured out half a century before, lead poisoning, botulism, starvation, hypothermia, madness, and probably cannibalism. And yet somehow he doesn't get nearly enough shit. Oh, it's not his fault the Navy put him in charge. Oh, but the tinned food, the tinned food. I'm sorry, but if I'm in charge of that expedition, I'm checking a sample of the fucking food to make sure it's edible before I leave for the Arctic. He didn't do this. So balls. This was the worst failure in the history of naval polar exploration, regardless of whether he gets any pity points for having his legs chewed off by an angry yeti. His incompetence was catching and spurred yet more twattery. The search for the Franklin mob was called the most extensive, expensive, perverse, ill-starred and abundantly written about manhunt in history. In the first decade alone, nearly 40 expeditions went in search of the idiot. Millions of pounds, hundreds of people, 170 odd years just to find your ships after you were dumb enough to get yourself and everyone else lost and nobody even bothered marking your grave, which shows you what they thought of you. To me, says that you deserve the crown of history's shittest explorer. That is very nice. I'm, I'm jumping in uh, here, clearly. Um, do, the, the evidence for the Yeti, where, where does that come from? Uh, a 10-part docudrama starring the guy from Rome 
Um, yeah, he fell down a hole and it ripped his legs off and he bled out. It was awesome. You should watch it. Um, I, I think it's based on facts, but I'm not sure where the exact source material came from for the Yeti, but it was very entertaining. That, that same very good. passage there is sailing. Yeah. <laughs> It's very close to the Kyber Pass. Or... Yes. It was carry-on, <laughs> carry-on polar exploration. Um, as I like interrogating people about um, foreign languages that they may or may not speak, um, uh, what have we got from the Inuit on this? Because there, there were, was there kind oh, of evidence on what happened to Oh, I do have a quote them? from the Inuit. I'm going to have to edit this while I go back and find it. Uh, it's one of those typically um, sort of First Nation quotes that's very philosophical. I just have to boot my Kindle up for this. Look at this because, fucking nerd. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but they, said, crazy. Uh, they basically tried to warn him, but they're they still... They're sailing up there. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> still, I'm wondering what accent they've spoken. I will do it in a copy of for you, Claire. <laughs> This just reminds me of those games from the, like the 1990s where you get your expedition has vanished without trace. The Oregon Trail. Apparently, the Inuit have a saying, if you must see to know, you will miss many things that are real, which translates as, next time I tell you not to sail there because it's too fucking cold, listen to me, and you won't freeze to death. Apparently. They also blamed... Um, blamed Franklin and his stupidity and his white man curse for their continued inability to eke a living out in, in that spot. Which persists um, to this day, frankly. Yeah. I mean, it could have could have been great up there, but no, he ruined it. Holmes? Did we... Uh, I mean, we they obviously ignored that weather warning. Was that because they had their own primitive weather forecasting or anything like that? Or they just no, being... it's not at all. I will quote it for you from Paul Watson, who has written a fantastic book, which I've stolen <laughs> all of it from, uh, called Ice Ghosts. Uh, One truth is eternal. Royal Navy prejudice towards indigenous people helped doom the Franklin expedition and the arrogant disregard for Inuit knowledge prolonged efforts to find out what happened to Sir John Franklin and the men he led to their deaths. And then I, I suppose what's interesting about this is compared to like Scott and Mawson, this guy isn't known by and large at all. Is that because what he did is deemed as so bad because he was incompetent and it lacks the sort of heroic failure element? Yeah, there, there's nothing fucking heroic. He's just bland. He's just shit. He's just, he should not be. So he basically had screwed up his career. He'd ended up as governor of van diemen's land which i'm in reliably informed is tasmania but the only tasmanian follower i had on twitter i had to block the other day because he was being a dick um so i couldn't ask him but anyway he pissed off some local people and um ruined his diplomatic career and was looking for one last hurrah and his wife convinced him that a trip to the arctic is the way to do it and finding the northwest passage uh but yeah he was 20 years past the average lifespan by that point and not in a good way and shouldn't have gone I mean, if you were trying to get rid of him, it worked. You don't have to spend all the cash to make it look like you care about finding him. Maybe he had the Building Society book on him when he uh, left. Yeah, must have been, because they didn't even bother putting a rock said, here lies the wanker that's killed us all. They didn't tell anyone where it, where it, where it is. Yeah. They made cairns for everybody else, so it goes with saying yeah. that there probably is one for him. They, they just, no, it's just spoke without saying that they really didn't like him, Matt. Well, well, they, if, they if did it, all eat each other. So the guy who had the map probably got used as a napkin. 
In fairness, if he got killed by a yeti and thrown down a hole, it's kind of hard to find where he's buried. And who's going after a yeti? Yeah, that's yeah, they, they at least put a fucking cross saying the dude that was in charge died here. They they just clearly, clearly didn't care. He is commemorated on Waterloo Place in London, and I take some of my tours through there. And um, it, it just and says Frank. It just says Franklin uh, on there. So I'll take Americans past, and they'll be like, "Oh, is that Benjamin Franklin?" No, this is a shit explorer. This is a yeah. different guy. Yes. My my favorite bit of this story is when they were searching for him. The Inuit went, "Well, there's a b- bunch of white men up there eating them, e- eating each other." And the guys that were searching went, oh, that can't possibly be Englishmen. Well, they went off. stupid natives. They don't know yes. what they're talking about again. <laughs> it can't be them. And it was, it was literally them all eating each other up, up just 20 miles away or something. Like yeah. That. He's, he's even, he's such a dick that he goes and dies first. He doesn't even like have to eke his existence out or do any of the walking. He goes and snuffs it before any of the real suffering starts. But which kind of person in charge of one of these things doesn't open a few of the tins of food to make sure it's actually edible before you take 130 people to the Arctic? Well, it was Royal Navy procurement. So it was, it was literally the, the, the little, the little of, you know, of, of the world. It, it was the food that went in was okay. You know, it's just always happy, happy and good if you actually seal the tin properly. I think they got lead poisoning from their water distillation kit as well, didn't they? It was all kind of lead pipes and stuff. So like lots of... Again, there's a not the nine o'clock news sketch about that sort of stuff, isn't there? Yeah. Well, the, the thing about lead poisoning is that, um, and one of the main symptoms is an incredible level of aggression. Aggression. You actually become more aggressive uh, when you've got lead poisoning, um, as well as all the horrendous um, other conditions that basically kill you. Um, and so it, you don't start thinking straight. Um, one of the interesting things that there's, there have been theories that uh, the Roman Empire was sort of sped along by uh, their use of lead um, because of all the, uh, the infighting that sort of emerged. So and then certainly there's um, papers that have looked at um, the, the effect of lead petrol. And since we stopped that, um, the United Nations have said that actually violence levels have dropped. So God knows what was going on, on the Franklin expedition. Maybe it wasn't a Yeti. Maybe it was his own crew that ate him. Yeah. So I'm, what accounts for Matt being so pissed off today? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I think that's just a, a general sort of build up of lead over many yeah, years. You've been blowing up a lead over. pipe all afternoon. <laughs> anyway, while the judges make up their mind, we'll go round the room and find out who you would have voted for if you couldn't have your own shit explorer. Um, <clears throat> I can't say Mawson because he's not, but it was the presentation was phenomenal, Clive. But. No, it was kits. Kits. The appropriate level of slapstick and nonsense. I liked kits. Uh, Clive, who would you go for? I'm going to be a creep and go for you, Alex. Oh, I love you, Clive. <laughs> Charlie? Um, I agree that Clive's presentation was just epic on all levels, but um, I have to go with Matt and Scott for being a complete dick who went after a load of rocks that nobody wanted and was just so British, and we love people who lose. So yeah. Thank you, Charlie. So right. Dorman. Uh, yes, fuck Scott, useless twat. <laughs> um, although he did enable an Irishman to, you know, do the job properly properly afterwards. So there's that. <laughs> Elena. I'm gonna go down the road with Kit. It's Beth. 
Um, I quite, I quite like Charlie's actually. I like the, you know, the going back and forth, not finding it three times. So yeah, I'd go with, but all of them were, I think it was really, really top notch. A, re- a selection all around this week so everyone but charlotte i think we've got efficient at weeding out historical fuckwittery haven't we chris who would you go for it's me. oh no we've got the microphone thing again i don't edit this out anymore because people love it if only they could see him flailing uh-huh. <laughs> like an explorer falling down a hole Matt, who would you go for I was blown away by Clive's energy and jumping up and down and moving around. And I really hope all that jumping up and down was a wind machine and not sort of nat- natural sounds. Um, I, I just, I just, I just found that really, really enjoyable. Um, this, despite the fact I don't think the person was a terrible one, but then again, he wasn't a conquistador and they're not explorers. So it's okay. And we go with Clive. <laughs> I have to say Clive. I, I just, it was great. Kit? Um, I think Conquistador Corner is just like, they're all a bunch of dicks. Mm. Every single one of them, massive dicks. Um, but I have to give a, a big shout out to it. The only story that's got him, got a man being eaten by a yeti. Um, <laughs> which is Franklin. <laughs> Boom. Merrin? Uh, Clive's presentation was outstanding as always. But despite his, um, Beef with Conquest. I've got to go with Scott. I've got to go with Scott. Chris, you got your mic back? Um, hopefully. Can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome. Um, I really love the Franklin Expedition. It's one of my favourites, but he does have a name in, uh, a street in Gillingham named after him. So I'm going to go with Kate because God, I would have bumbling... led with that if I'd known. Proof enough. <laughs> Um, I, I feel for Kate because as a um, bumbling ginger idiot and who couldn't manage his way out of a paper bag, I, I, I feel I might be reincarnated from her choice. So I'm going to go with Kate. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Judges, what have you made of it? Um, so it's tight at the top. Actually, there's, um, we, we couldn't separate a third place. So we have two um, tied for third. And we were... Touched very much by Chris and his um, plagiarising nonsense German running around Papua New Guinea. Um, I, I, I like that one very much. And we could not really separate them from the boss. Alex uh, comes in tied third with uh, Franklin as a douche. Um, rumbling up into second place and uh, I, I guess really setting the bar very high uh, in terms of utter silliness apart from anything uh, else we have Merrin um, coming yes. in um, yeah yes really um, we thought that this was a nonsense exploration it just about qualifies uh, as exploration but Charles Bedeau, um was a cock Okay, so then moving on to first, um, it's not Clive. Oh, never is, never is. Although we won't be able to get hold of him for next week, he'll have been picked up by BBC News. It's not Clive. Clive's delivery was brilliant and a joy to behold, but I don't think his candidate was strong enough for the purposes of the brief, unfortunately. Um. So with that in mind, we've actually gone for Kit. 
for the reasons hey. that I mind. It ticked all the boxes. It was stupid. He was an idiot. It was incompetent. It was a bit of slapstick, a bit of pizzazz. I, I love the fact that the guy fucking spent the first two months just getting to the point where any normal person would have started. It's exactly. It's two, it's two months hiking there and the male's doing it in a week and he could have just caught the fucking train. Um, <laughs> then there's, a Mon- there's a Monty Python sketch, isn't there, about mountaineering up a high street. It, it, it really is that kind <laughs> of level of stupidity. Yeah. I love the fact that a lot of Australian kids are taught of this guy as a hero. Because they sort of there's the fa- there's a famous movie called Burke and Wills and it stops with them reaching in sight of the sea and not going there. It doesn't cover the fact that on the way back they all died, <laughs> well, except one. Is it Mel Gibson? Uh, no, it's <laughs> Nigel Havers, I think. Actually. Oh, really? <laughs> it's British people taking the piss out of the Australians, basically. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thank you so much. Congratulations, Kit. Once again, he stormed in um, and wins. He's unstoppable. Next week, uh, we are gonna we are searching for, and this one's a little bit different because it requires or it can lead itself uh, to a bit more creativity, uh, which is already doing. I already know because I've spoken to Beth about what she's doing. It's going to be grand. We are searching for the best night out in history. Yeah. So a rock up. We by all means rock up. We. VE day or whatever, uh, but know that other people are putting a lot more imagination into it than that. We also have next Wednesday, and it will go out before that, we have basically next Wednesday is St. Dorman's Day on History Hack. We have Andy Dorman talking about history. What the fuck's that about? Because apparently he's actually a historian as well. So he'll be talking to us all about uh, the British Army in Ireland. But he's not going to be talking about what you think he's going to be talking about. And then we will be having a special down the pub that evening as well, where we let Dorman judge the greatest moment in Irish history. But because we're sadists, we made him judge it with Princess. uh, And much fun was had especially by Chris, who started dressing up again. So don't miss that either. (laughs) When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.